Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on conversations with some media giants. Maria Taylor of NBC Sports, Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports, and Bonnie Bernstein of Walk Swiftly Productions. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Joining me now on the Blinder Guest Line, Maria Taylor. She's one of ESPN's most versatile reporters. She's the studio host for ESPN's NBA Countdown and College Game Day. She's also a sideline reporter for ESPN's college football and basketball coverage. Follow her on Twitter at Maria Taylor. Maria, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I've wanted to have you on for a while now. I I really marvel at your versatility. I see you on NBA Countdown, College Game Day in studio, but then I also see you working the sidelines at college football games, college basketball games. It's a totally different skill set to be in studio versus on the sidelines. Where did you get this versatility? (laughs) Well, it's funny. When I first started out, I always said that I wanted to be a, a well-rounded broadcaster the same way that you always have like a well-rounded volleyball or basketball player where you, you're not defined by just one aspect of your game. Because I wanted my company to essentially feel comfortable saying, all right, if we have a game or we've got the draft going on or whatever it may be, like Maria will be comfortable in that scenario. And um, so from the beginning, that was a big focus of mine. And I will say that working at SEC Network was like the biggest blessing ever being a part of a network that was 24 hours and we needed reporters. We needed people to host SEC Nows after baseball games. We needed someone to travel to Baton Rouge and host a softball tournament and doing things that I really wasn't comfortable with early in my career helped me in the long run. And I think too, doing live events kind of makes you better in the studio because you never know what to expect. You don't know if there's going to be weather. You don't know who's going to win. You don't know if OU is going to come back from being up 25 <laughs> or down 25 to win a game, which just happened to me this weekend. So, you know, there's always something interesting happening in live event that helps me become a better studio host. So did you communicate to ESPN, hey, look, I want to do anything and everything. I want to be that versatile reporter. Or did they just observe that on their own and go, wow, she can do a lot of different things. We're going to give her several different things to do. I think it took me a while to find an ability to kind of vocalize really what I wanted. I think I knew in my mind. Um, But I remember having a conversation with John John Wildhack, and now he's the AD at Syracuse. But it was a time when my contract was coming up, and I told him, I was like, I want you guys to look at me and say, okay, if if she needed to, we could have her host college game day, but we also feel that she's a very competent reporter, you know, or we know that she could host the Women's Final Four. So whatever that looks like, that's what I told him at the time. Like, whatever I need to be doing, that's what I want to be working towards. Those are the roles that I want to be taking on. And he was the first one that was like, okay, like, let's put this into action. And that following year, I was hosting SEC Nation, and he was like, okay, we're going to put you on the prime men's basketball game this year, and you're going to host the women's final four, and you're going to start getting some of those reps that you're talking about. Like, we're going to put you in those situations so that if something like that did come up, you would be ready for it. So I think that was the first conversation I had, which would have been um, – probably right after I had inked my SEC network deal. So a couple years after, maybe 2016-ish, that I had that conversation. And it's kind of just been growing from there. I want to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty about your job. So when you're doing NBA Countdown and you've got Jalen Rose and Jay Williams and 
you know, others in the studio with you. When you're a studio host, you've got to, it's fast moving. You've got highlights. You've got to work your teammates into the conversation a little bit versus being a sideline reporter where you've got a finite amount of time to ask a question, get it answered. Let's start with the studio role. How do you mm-hmm. kind of play point guard to make sure everyone's involved on that set? Mm-hmm. I think it's very similar in the studio as it is on the sideline where it's like, it's not really about you. Like it's all about the person that you're covering. And so for me, when I'm in the studio, like you kind of mentioned, like it's about the analyst, like trying to get to whatever point it is that they want to make. So whether that's knowing which direction they want to go in and, you know, listening in on their conference calls when they're talking to our producers so I can understand, okay, what are they really hot on or how Jay will has our, you know, saw some of Carmelo's workouts over the summer or, you know, the fact that Jalen, he's been in a similar situation where, you know, when your career's coming to an end and how that feels to be traded to a different team, like understanding where my guys want to go makes it easier to play point guard. So that's the same as like understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the people on your team. That's how you give them the ball and set them up for success. Um, so that's been something fun. Like I think it grows. The chemistry is obviously going to grow the more times you work with each other. And so we've probably done, I want to say four countdowns at this point, um, maybe one more set of half times. And so, you know, we're working through that. Like we're learning how to read each other. We're learning um, when, okay, yeah, there's a joke here, or you don't have to be teed up again and the guys can just go banter back and forth. So that's kind of been fun to watch it evolve because that's the beginning of every show or any, you know, new project that you're working on, like those initial working through the chemistry kinks and figuring out how to work best with each other. And I enjoy that. Like, I love these moments and being able to work with guys like Jay Will, Jalen, Paul, RJ, Woj, you know, like we're having so much fun in the studio getting to know each other. And then the sideline stuff. So again, you know, and I've had Tom Rinaldi on this show before and, you know, he's shared with us like when you're doing the sideline you know you're a trying to ask questions within a finite amount of time but b you're kind of the envoy as he put it to the audience you're trying to ask the question sometimes it's an obvious question sometimes it's not but it's the question that the audience wants you to ask what's your prep for sideline reporting and asking those questions during the points of the game where they come to you Yeah, I think a lot of the times you're really just paying attention to the game and you, like Tom said, like we are as much a voyeur as the viewer at home is in trying to decipher, okay, what is the most important thing that's happening right now? What's the biggest question that's going to be on the minds of the viewers that are sitting at home? A lot of times, even just listening, I mean, we have a IFB and so I can hear our broadcast the entire time. So if, if Herbie keeps asking, like, gosh, I wonder why the D line just like can't figure this one play out then that might be the question that I'm asking coach at halftime or that's what I'm trying to figure out when I'm going and watching the defensive line huddle and seeing if the guys are talking about that or if coaches are pointing something out or drawing up something new or talking through communication because that's what my job is as kind of the ears and the eyes on the field. I have the access that no one else basically on our broadcast or no fan at home has in that particular moment and I can speak to and answer some of the questions that no one else could answer at that time. I watched you uh, last weekend on that incredible Oklahoma-Baylor game where Oklahoma came back. That must have been a fun game to work. Go backwards and, again, take us behind the scenes. When do you find out that you're assigned to that game? And then what's your preparation look like from the time you're assigned until you get to that game? Sure. We usually find out what game that we're working on on Sunday. Every now and then we'll find out Saturday night during as we're literally working the game. 
So, you know, you're booking travel on a Monday, Tuesday, and I'm hitting up the sports information department of each school, uh, usually on Monday and setting up calls. Like even this evening, I'm talking to Oregon and it'll be, you know, 745 Pacific time, but it'll be 1045 Eastern. And I'll be talking to, you know, Justin Herbert or Jawan Johnson, and you're talking to players about whether it's how they've improved, where the team is now, um, certain things that have been going on, if they're coming off a loss, okay, what are you guys working on, what did you learn from that? So that's the first thing that you have to do is just gaining access to the players so that if something comes up in the game that you could add to it or there's a player that's coming off the injury that's a critical piece to a defense, like you want to know how it affects them. Can they not move laterally? Has it messed up their speed or quickness or whatever that looks like? Sometimes you're talking to um, coaches leading up to it. I was just actually sending one of my producers a story that I did on J.K. Dobbins about his strength training and how he kind of has changed his body going into this year for Ohio State because Herbie's working on a piece with him. But those are the things that you're kind of building up during your week of preparation. And a lot of times you're supposed to get on campus on Thursday, so you get to go and have meetings with the coaches and players. But since I'm doing Countdown, I am in the studio Friday night, so I just fly in. So I do a lot of my um, prep remote, which is talking to the coaches and players on the phone. One of the things I've noticed about you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you're you're six two. You played basketball and volleyball at University of Georgia. Whether you're on set on NBA Countdown with former NBA players, or whether you're interviewing a college football player, there seems to be a street cred that exists with you. I see how they look at you and how they respect you, and it's kind of like athletes respect athletes. Do you feel that when you are talking to athletes and coaches, whether, again, it's on set or at a game, that there's a little bit of that camaraderie there because you played as an elite athlete? I, I do honestly feel that. I mean, like one of the probably the greatest blessings I have is that my dad was six seven. Like being able to walk into a room and the first question that some people are going to ask you is like, well, what did you play? Like, right. You're six two. Obviously, you did something, right? You know, or like I've had receivers walk in. Um, I remember when I was covering like Jarvis Landry. He's like, your hands are bigger than mine. I was like, I know, right? Like I could have been a receiver. And that just, you know, breaks the ice. Right. <laughs> and you can build a conversation from there, and you can kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I played, and I remember, you know, how this felt, how coming back from that injury was, and being able to have a conversation was like, oh yeah, I know the struggles with dealing with your coach and it's just easier to get into it. And there's, you know, the understanding too, that you're not going to burn them. I remember um, Jimbo Fisher, we were having a conversation. I was covering the national championship between Alabama and Georgia. And I went to Georgia and um, I was asking him, I was like, so as a, like, would you not want me around your team if you knew my alma mater was Georgia? Like, would you feel like I could give away a trade secret or something? And he said, honestly, no, because you are a former athlete and you know how hard both of these teams have worked to get here. And I know you wouldn't do anything to impede a competitive advantage or, or take something away from a team because both these teams belong to go there no matter whether or not you went to school there. And I was like, yeah, you're so right. Like, that's how I've always described it since then. But it's the reality of it, just like an understanding of the sacrifice that all athletes and coaches are giving up to be great at this one thing or be great at this one moment, you know, I can understand that. Well, and I would imagine it makes for a different conversation than, say, someone like I would have with an athlete. If I was interviewing them in your position, you've played at an elite level. They're going to look at you a certain way. I haven't. So mm-hmm. they're gonna under, they know that you're going to understand them in a different way. And ultimately, I think it makes for a better conversation because 
you know, you've been on campus, like you said, you get there a few days early, you build that rapport with the coaches and the players, and by the time you're interviewing Jalen Hurts, for example, after that big mm-hmm. comeback win, now right. you've got a little bit of a rapport built with him, so he's going to open up with you in that moment. Exactly. The walls will come down, and he's going to be honest about it. Like, yeah, I made mistakes. Because I think, too, he's like, in that moment, even though he knows, obviously, he's on TV, but you're talking to another person. So if you're feeling like you're going to be judged by what you say or, you know, that person is um, going to be negative in some way or whatever you might be feeling, then you're going to shut down some. That's just the reality of how anyone would be in that situation. So it's just about making, having the trust already built where that person just feels comfortable talking to you. If you're going to be the face that they're speaking to, mm-hmm. um, they have to be really comfortable in that situation when adrenaline's rushing or, you know, in fact, he didn't play well, even though they came back and he was still kind of feeling bad. He's feeling great because they won, but he's like, I fumbled on the goal line. You know what I mean? So, right. And then he can be open and have that conversation with you because he doesn't feel like he needs to clam up. He trusts you. Right. All right, I need a backstory on something. On your Twitter mm-hmm. feed, your pinned tweet is a picture of you and President <laughs> Obama from yes. the North Carolina Duke game from last year mm-hmm. with the caption, my life has been made. And look, <laughs> anyone who meets President Obama gets their picture taken with him. That's got to be an incredible moment. But here's my question to you. Yes. You got to interview him during the game. Mm-hmm. Walk me through how that happens. Is it you just walking up to him before the game and saying, hey, President Obama, I want to interview you at some point during the game. Do you have to go through like Secret Service and Obama PR? Like, how does that moment happen? Well, number one, I feel like there's Secret Service everywhere inside the arena and they're just like dressed as regular people because you literally don't know. Like, it's not like anyone's in suits there, but you know for a fact, like, okay, obviously there's six people probably surrounding him that are the Secret Service. Right. And um, it's funny because we knew that day, like, there's a big chance he's definitely probably going to be there. Like, they've already done their sweep of the arena. Like, he's going to come. And I spent my entire day, like, prepping myself. Like, okay, this is exactly what I'm going to say when I meet him. And I'm going to be like, you know, and I wanted to be like, Mr. President, even though you're not the president anymore. (laughs) I just wanted to, like, shake his hand and be like, you know, because of you and Michelle, like, I am and I feel as though I can be anything that I want to be or whatever. Wow. And then I meet him and I'm just like, hey. You know, right. You no have to you have to not be overwhelmed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was like the first time I've been shocked and awed and didn't know what to say. But he was like, oh, Maria, it's so nice to meet you. You know, me and Michelle, we watch Get Up. We love you on that. Like, you should just be a regular, be on all the time. And I'm like, oh, my God, they watch TV. Like, that's like the first thing that comes <laughs> to my mind. And I just thought it was so interesting that he was like, yeah, like. And how tall are you? He's asking me questions. I'm like, you know, I didn't run the free world, you know. That was not my job. And he wants to know what sport I played or, oh, we knew you were tall, you know. Right. <laughs> I just thought it was so incredible. But I heard that that's kind of what he does. He makes everyone feel super comfortable. So, no, he, 100% approachable because he was sitting right on the sideline or on the end line. Wow. I walked up. No one got in the way. No one stopped me. In fact, I got stopped going up to LeBron at the – Virginia Tech um, do, or UVA Duke game, I feel like I was more stopped going up to him than I was going up to <laughs> Barack. Like LeBron, I'd be like, no, she's fine. It's okay. <laughs> I had three people stop me. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. But what a great mm-hmm. moment and how nice it is that he took a picture with you. And, I mean, that's a moment I would imagine that you'll remember your entire career. Yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure there's nothing else I can do in the world of um, sports. So I think <laughs> everything else is just icing on the cake at this point. 
the fact that I got to meet Barack Obama because I was covering a game, and during that game, Zion Williamson blew his shoe out. And right, that was a huge was, game. Know, like anything, it was like the strangest day of sports, but the coolest thing to be a part of. No, it's wonderful. I want to talk about some of the uh, other things that you do. You're an incredible mentor to people who want to shadow you. You had uh, one of the star Baylor women's mm-hmm. basketball team members shadow yeah. you at the Baylor-Oklahoma game last weekend. You know, I've heard from various people at ESPN, you're really good about kind of paying it forward and letting people shadow you. What advice do you give to people when they're following you around? You know, I always, one, I make sure that they're getting the full experience of if I really were to take on this role or if it's something that I really want to do, what would that be like? So I give them an ISB so they can hear the producer, so that they can hear the broadcast. I introduce them to anyone that I'm in contact with. So meet the audio guy, meet uh, my producer, meet Herbie, meet Chris, have a conversation with them so that you can find out what everyone else is doing. Um, And then I tell them to feel free to ask me questions. Like, if you want to know what I'm doing, and I tell them, okay, now we're going over, the reason we're going to listen to the defensive huddle is because of this, or the reason we need to go to the other side is that there's an injury report we need, or now we need to go to talk to Lincoln Riley about this as he comes back out after halftime. And I just want to give them an honest look into what it's like to work in broadcasting, because I think a lot of times people say that they're interested in it, but they don't really know what they want to do, and I want them to know that it's not just the people that are on TV that are you know, that are an option for a job. But there's there's a career here that involves people in the truck and anywhere. And I just think it's so important to open up those doors. Specifically, I mean, my heart always pulls for the student athlete because we tend to have a really hard time when you're trying to transition out of your sport and figure out what you want to do next. And I think it's cool that I have an opportunity to be on campuses and give student athletes an opportunity to think about their career after sport. You know, even though in Dee Richard, she's only going to be a junior. She won two more nationals, but she'll have had this one game or this one moment where she got to think about, okay, what do I want to do next? Like, what am I inspired by or what do I want to work towards? And I think that's what it's all about. When did that light go on for you when you were at University of Georgia saying, hey, maybe broadcasting is a path that I want to take? We used to always have our volleyball matches. You'd probably have like three matches on TV that, you know, back in the day. Now every single match is on SEC Network, and as, like the kids are so used to just being on TV. That was like a treat for us. And so I remember you would get a chance to talk to the analysts that were there. And I remember, I don't even know when it happened, but it was just like, if that, that's a job. Like, I could just go to games and talk to players and then talk about them as they play. Like, I want to do that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, I changed my major three times. I was first going to do uh, – I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to stay around teams or be a team doctor in some way. Then I changed it to business because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I changed it to journalism because my best friend was basically in journalism, and she always knew she wanted to be a uh, local news broadcaster and now she like designs websites but I went to class with her and was like oh journalism's really cool and then added on to that that okay a part of the journalism school is you're learning how to be on tv and I could be doing what those analysts were doing so that's literally how I decided I guess that that's what I wanted to do and I always told myself like I would have been the happiest person on earth to just be covering volleyball and women's basketball and like being at the volleyball national championship and eventually making it to the women's basketball final four and covering it. Like those are my dreams. You know, I never envisioned this football aspect of it. I never was like, Oh yeah, working in the NBA, that was going to be the dream. It was just like, no, I just want to cover the sports that I played at the highest level. You know, 
Now it's amazing. Your your rise has been super impressive, and you know, like I said, I can see the respect that your peers have for you. A because you put in the work and the preparation. Who were some of your inspirations or role models? I read a story that Robin Roberts was someone who once gave you some really good advice. But who were some of the people that inspired you in the broadcasting realm? Yes, I mean definitely Robin Roberts because there was a time when like. She was basically the only black female doing sports. If you wanted to find someone, I mean, it was her, Pam Oliver. um, And that was about it for a while that I was like, I can actually see myself as a broadcaster in them. And I just remember Robin taking the time out of a day. Literally, she had like just gotten off GMA and she promised my former um, Georgia basketball head coach that she would call me. And she sure did. And she spoke to me for 20, 30 minutes. And I just remember the way that she made me feel, and I was like, okay, I got to, like, pass this feeling on to the next kid that needs help or wants advice. But I think the way that she handles herself, like, with so much grace, it doesn't matter if she's interviewing Dolly Parton or an author or, you know, Taylor Swift. She is the same person. She never changes. She's super genuine, and it's just like you're in the living room with her. And I think that there's something unique about someone who can just be themselves on TV I mean, that's what I kind of strive for. Yeah, no, definitely. You want the person to be authentic. The same person mm-hmm. you see in the media, you want them to be that person when you meet them instead of someone totally different. So you've got your Winning Edge Leadership Academy. And, you know, again, you're you're paying it forward. You're making a difference in the lives of many people. Tell our audience about that. Sure. Um, Winning Edge Leadership Academy is something that, Uh, Myself and our co-founder, Kareen Million, started um, in 2015, and it's basically geared towards helping women and minorities work in the sports industry. So we provide um, mentors, professional development. We would, if there's a kid that wanted to have an internship but didn't quite have the money to pay for, you know, flying out there or going on the interview, we'll pay for that. Or if there's an application fee for graduate school, you know, just trying to break down some of those barriers to entry for minorities and women and also create a support system and a network for them to rely on when they get into the sports field, because honestly, retention is another thing that you have to be concerned with. But we have had two successful retreats, one in Miami, we actually worked with the University of Miami, and then we just had one in Atlanta this past year, and we worked with Turner, um, the Braves, Jackson Spaulding, and basically we just bring in 16 student-athletes, and we just pour into them for four days, and we call it our cohort, and literally the kids graduate, and we have alumni now, so that's amazing. we're following them up, and we're just trying to make sure that, you know, even if they decide they don't want to work in sports, we just want them to be successful in whatever they choose, just off the field of play, you know? We're going to have the Maria Taylor success tree to follow pretty yeah. soon. Yeah, <laughs> like a coaching tree. That's right. <laughs> well, and then you do a sports and entertainment summit too, right? Yes. We just did that in Beverly Hills, and we um, worked with WME William Morris Endeavor. That's my uh, the agency that I work with. And so we brought in kids for two days, same thing, student athletes, and we literally we were planted – at WME in Beverly Hills, and we had agents coming in to talk to them. Brad Slater, who works with like The Rock and everyone else, and then we got um, people to come in from 
the undefeated. We had people coming in from LeBron's production company. We really wanted the kids to see that, like, okay, you could work in entertainment and you don't necessarily have to be an actor. You could be the agent that books them or you can be, you can work on the side that's developing these shows or these documentaries or you're a writer or you're the guy that goes out and shoots it. So we just wanted them to see that there's just a big world behind the scenes, behind those curtains and, and let them know that there's plenty of ways for them to fill in. Now it's amazing. Hey, a few more minutes, and then I know I need to let you go. Uh, your use of social media, I think you use it really well. You know, it seems like in this day and age as a reporter or a media personality, it, it's part of your job. It's not optional anymore. But what you do is is fun and engaging, and, and I feel like there's a little bit of behind the scenes, too. Talk to me about your use of social media. Sure. Yeah, that's what I love about it. My Probably my favorite part of social media or the thing to use would probably be Instagram stories because those are, you know, an opportunity to videotape just, okay, yeah, it's pouring down rain in Michigan. And so here's what the players are doing literally right now, or here's what it looks like right before we go on air on get up, or this is what we were laughing about in the green room right beforehand. And it just is another opportunity to, again, take the viewer or anyone that's sitting at home or heck my mom, give them the opportunity to see like, oh, okay, like this is what your day was looking like. So it was just almost a video diary. So I love, you know, those opportunities. And the same thing, a little less on Twitter. Like I feel like Twitter's a little bit more of an information gathering type of situation. But if I could say there's one thing I'd love to do in the future is like, it would definitely be documentaries. And I feel like I'm just like documenting my day, like mini videos leading up to the game or during the game, et cetera. What kind of documentary would you want to do? You know, I've always envisioned one um, revolving around Michael Vick and, like, the rise of trap or rap in Atlanta. And then I had this huge vision of, like, Vick standing on top of the destroyed Georgia Dome, which they still haven't cleaned up in the center of Atlanta. <laughs> really? <laughs> and being like, he built it, and then it crashed down, you know what I mean? But, you know, everything that goes into, like, the economic growth that we've seen in Atlanta since the time that he was there and, like, how the music scene grew at the same time that that was all going down. You know what I mean? It almost was like a culture was being built when the Dirty Birds and Michael Vick were happening. Yeah, he's been on this show. What a story he has. I have an event called Sports PR Summit, and he came mm-hmm. and, and was on stage at that. And, you know, one of the things I find so impressive about him is the fact that he's willing to own the mistakes he made of the past. There's not a lot of athletes out there, I won't name them, but who who would own <laughs> so their true. mistakes in the way that he did. And, and I really pull for him with his second chance because, you know, he realizes what he did and, and he's tried to be a better person going forward. But I forget, you know, you're from Atlanta, so you've seen that mm-hmm. whole story up oh, close yeah. and personal and how it impacted the city. Mm-hmm. I'm an Atlanta girl through and through, and and Atlanta's very diverse too. Like I think that the community loved the fact that there was a black quarterback. Like I just feel like there's only certain places that he could have been the superstar that he was. Like hmm. the the changing of the culture, the leader of a culture in that time period, and it was Atlanta. Like he was right where he needed to be in that moment in time. Last question for you. If I said, all right, Maria, you can go cover any event you want in sports mm. or, or entertainment. I'm going to even throw that out there. Okay. okay. What is it that you want to go cover? The first thing that comes to mind is um, gymnastics in the Olympics. Really? Because, yeah, one, again, went to Georgia, and we won four national championships while I was in school. 
And I've just always been obsessed with gymnastics, probably because I just know I could never do it. And it just takes such a specific type of athlete and dedication to do it. So I'm always like glued. I love it. I love gymnastics. Well, and And, Simone uh, Biles is just incredible. I mean, exactly. If I could cover Simone Biles, that would be even better. So, and just covering the Olympics in general, like it doesn't matter what sport it is, just to be like, oh yeah, cover the Olympics. That was pretty cool, you know. And you've and, already you've already gotten to interview President Obama. So, is there anyone else right? other than President Obama mm. and Simone Biles that's on your list of, of, you know? And again, it could be anyone. It doesn't have to be sports sure. related. Someone you want to sit down with and have a conversation with. Serena is up there. Hmm. Serena Williams is on there. Um, just a regular any everyday person honestly like if i could sit down with a a group of people it would be like the first WNBA stars i keep saying but think of like teresa weatherspoon like the dawn staley cynthia cooper like get a group of them together and like whoever was the first wave because i just think that that's kind of interesting and again i love women's basketball that's who i grew up like i wore shawl shoes like that was the first time maybe the only time that we had a women's basketball shoe and it was hers and like to be in the middle of that that's probably another documentary i would love to have but like a roundtable discussion about like the female athlete and where it's going or where it's been but i feel like it was kind of the height of the times when they came out which was cool see i feel like that's a 30 for 30 can you go pitch that i mean look you've got no, some clout now can you go pitch that i, I want to see it You could be like, um, you're going to have to be a part of it now. Oh, I'm all in. I've met Cynthia Cooper. I've met Cheryl Swoops. Mm -hmm. I've actually, uh, way back in the day when she was still at Mm -hmm. UConn, I played pickup with Diana Taurasi. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they are incredible. But you're right, going way back to the beginning of the WNBA and those kind of founders of it, that would be really interesting to me. And I, hey, I'm in. Anything that you're doing or anything having to do. <laughs> see, my listeners know I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I'm uh-huh. all in on all in. women's sports <laughs> and anything that has to do with uh, promoting women. I, I, I love it. But I think that would be interesting because it's. I, I've never seen a documentary on the early days of the WNBA. I know. And it was, I mean, they were like selling out arenas and stuff. Like it was a big deal. The Comets back in the day. Oh like, man, you go everything. to Houston, the Comets were every bit as big as the Rockets and they were winning right. championships like every year. Mm-hmm. We could probably get some vintage Comets jerseys going and they would sell out instantly. I Like retro, retro Comets jerseys. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Maria Taylor from ESPN. Follow her on Twitter at Maria Taylor. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I'm really happy for your success. Uh, I think you're doing a great job. Your preparation shows too. You know, I think that's a big part of of your success. And um, you know, I can tell you're really good at building rapport with people. And I just uh, am happy for your success. So I appreciate you taking the time to join me. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. And your preparation shows too. You basically knew everything about me. So it's great to you. <laughs> hey, I had CJ McCollum on a few weeks ago, and CJ uh-huh. said for his podcast, he his exact words were, "I stalk my guests before I have them on." Literally. So you know that's kind of what I do is I make sure that when you come on, you know that I did my homework and that uh, mm-hmm. you feel like this was worth your time. So right. I hope it well, was much appreciated. It was, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger here. In addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the co-founder of the consulting firm Everything is on the Record. 
Since 2007, we've been working with CEOs, corporate spokespeople, pro sports team owners, athletic directors, elite athletes, and coaches to help them navigate the tricky media and social media landscape. My business partner is Rick Buecher of Fox Sports. As part of a new partnership with e-learning platform Open Sesame, we are now offering many of our teachings via on-demand courses available on video. Courses include presenting your best self in a video meeting. Your personal brand is connected to your employer's brand. Pause before you post, text, and email. And scrubbing your social media. To take any of our insightful video courses on demand, visit opensesame.com and type in the words, everything is on the record in the search. That's opensesame.com. To learn more about how we can provide a customized training session for your organization, visit everythingisontherecord.com. That's everythingisontherecord.com. Now, here's Brian's interview with Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports from June 2017. My guest this week is Tom Rinaldi, ESPN reporter and master storyteller. Tom has won 12 National Sports Emmy Awards, six National Edward R. Murrow Awards, and a host of other honors for his work. Among his stories are the profile of the man in the red bandana detailing the heroism of Boston College athlete Wells Crowther during 9-11, which earned the National Sports Emmy Award for long feature reporting. The story also became the subject of Tom's first book, The Red Bandana, released in 2016. You've seen Tom cover everything from golf to tennis to college football on ESPN. He's the network's go-to reporter when it comes to conducting one-on-one interviews with people in crises, including his interviews with Tiger Woods and Manti Teo. Tom, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. It was so great having you at Sports PR Summit last month at the Players' Tribune. Your conversation with Rick Buecher was one of the highlights of our event. The feedback I got from everyone there was they wish it could have gone for three hours, your conversation with Rick. So thank you so much for joining us. I don't know what that says about the the uh, the agenda items that followed, or the <laughs> fact that people just were were. All, I guess that maybe the entropy had set in, and people didn't want to move from their seats or whatever it was. But I don't know that we were captivating to that degree. But it's great to to be with you. I had a great time with Rick. I uh, loved being a part of the event. It was a, a great great way to meet other people in the business, and certainly in the, in the crossroads where. You do a lot of your good work. So I appreciate you having me, Brian. Well, thank you. And as I told you, and you know, I'm not just saying this, but when I was drawing up the agenda for Sports PR Summit, you were number one on my list, and, and that's why I'm happy we're speaking today. I think you are the best storyteller in broadcasting, bar none, news, sports, any journalism. Your stories are just so captivating, so it's really great to have you on today. I feel like this is like the uh, overtime version of the conversation that you and Rick had at Sports PR Summit. We get to continue a little bit of that today. Well, I appreciate that, and I've known Rick for a very, very long time, and have certainly watched his career take its different turns, and uh, again, it was great to spend time with him and, and with you. Let's start with your early career. Uh, I've read your bio, and you were a high school English teacher, and you taught handball, and you go from that to journalism. Walk us through how you made that transition. Right. Uh, so when I graduated from college, I went to school in Philadelphia at uh, at Penn, 
and my first job was at a private school, a fantastic uh, prep school, Shady Side Academy, which is in the Fox Chapel neighborhood of Pittsburgh. I did that for a couple of years. And then I left and went to the, by some definitions, I guess, the other end of the spectrum in American education. I went to a public high school, a zone high school in New York City in the South Bronx, Morris High School. It's Colin Powell's alma mater, hmm. uh, where at the time uh, the school was situated in the poorest congressional district in the United States. Uh, and the school, I learned a great deal in both postings. Uh, I learned a great deal about the, the, capacity, the students' capacities for learn, to learn, a great deal about the power of expectation. And I also learned, Brian, to a degree, when I got to the Bronx, despite the fact that I was born in Brooklyn, how sheltered I think I was growing mm. up in suburban New Jersey and going to college. It was something that I really learned a lot from both postings as well as coaching in both spots. I coached basketball and soccer in Pittsburgh, and then I coached handball, as you said, the absolute most urban of sports, which was, a, uh, uh, I, you know, when you say to people handball, this isn't team handball that you see in the Olympics. This is basically a hard rubber ball that you ha- your hands get calloused over and you are hitting it against a stone slab of a wall. And uh, I'm happy to say all these years later that we were a district co-champion when I coached, (laughs) which had nothing to do with me. And it's had to do with our great kids. And uh, I then decided to make a turn, and I went to journalism school at Columbia. And uh, my path changed from there. You, one of your early jobs, I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I'm sitting in a studio right now here in Portland, Oregon. You worked for KATU, the ABC affiliate in Portland. I did. It was the, I did. It was the second job. My first job was at WNDU, uh, at the time owned by Notre Dame, uh, in South Bend. I was a news reporter, general assignment reporter. Same in Portland, Oregon. Loved Portland. The uh, Northwest is without question the best summer for my liking in the United States. Uh, Low humidity, beautiful skies, no bugs, just great weather, everybody outdoors, such a vibrant place, loved Portland, Uh, was there for a couple of years and then went to Sacramento for a short time and then got my first job in sports at the the now shuttered CNNSI network. And uh, a few years after that, got a great break and went to ESPN. Is it true that when you were at CNNSI, ESPN offered you a job, you turned it down, and then when CNNSI shuttered, ESPN said, "We'll still have you." Yeah, that was a uh, that was a career suicide moment. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking in turning down the worldwide leader, uh, and then a, a year later, the network shuttered, and I came crawling back over broken glass to see if they would have me. Um, and really, they would not have worked out, as is the case with many, many different instances in my career, Brian, if not for luck and timing. Uh, Melissa Stark, if you you remember, was uh, the Monday Night Football sideline reporter. Uh, That was at ABC at the time. She became an ABC headcount employee. And as a result, that opened up a headcount for ESPN. And uh, I was able to, to beg my way back in and get the job. 
You do so many things now for ESPN. We see you on golf. We see you on tennis, college football. We see you in studio shows. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, you're the go-to reporter for people in crises like Tiger Woods and, and Manti Teo. It's rare, Tom, where you see someone wear that many different hats. I think in, in broadcasting, especially at the network level, we see someone kind of specialize in one sport or, you know, just do a studio show. How did you kind of morph into this utility player, so to speak, for ESPN? I think the real key there was a profound lack of expertise in anything. <laughs> <laughs> that, that helped me a lot. I think that and saying yes. Um, but, but I've been very, very lucky to be asked a real, there have been a handful of people, as there are for you, Brian, anyone who's listening, mentors who have really helped me by giving me opportunity, by challenging me, by giving me ways to grow, by giving me constructive and at times certainly tough and, and needed feedback. Um, I was hired as a bureau uh, reporter to work out of the New York Bureau. That was my first job. But really, the job very quickly morphed into doing human interest stories, if you will, across all sport. And then from there, it morphed into going to cover some of the golf events that we then had in our portfolio, the British Open, the U.S. Open, I then moved into the telecast side to do essays and interviews. From there, uh, I became a, you know, a feature reporter for Game Day, which was probably the break of my career. Uh, it's just been a phenomenal ride here with Game Day. Now, I think going to be my 14th year or 14th season with the show. Uh, and then I moved from there into sidelines. Um, I've moved into play by play. With tennis, I'll be doing play-by-play at Wimbledon this year, at the U.S. Open this year. Uh, obviously, two of the huge, biggest events in the sport, which we have in our portfolio. Uh, it's just been great. So I always tell people I sort of do, you know, five things or six things. I do the sports you mentioned, I do the human interest stories, and then I do whatever they ask me to do. And that's what's morphed into the spot that I have now. One of the things that I admire from afar about you the most is when I see you, whether it's with your colleagues at ESPN or when you're interviewing someone like a Tiger Woods, the perceived respect that they have for you. You know, you can tell when people are like, I don't really want to be talking to this person. But when you're doing an interview, the person is captivated. They're engaged in the conversation. Maybe you can talk for just a minute about, you know, I, I know that's not dumb luck. That is the residue of hard work and being respectful and success. But how do you get to that point where you build that respect with the subjects that you're interviewing? That's a t- fantastic question. I'm not sure I have a neat and clear answer. But the beginning of my answer is actually a question back to you. When you say you feel as though you notice that, Brian, you can perceive that between interviewer and subject, my question to you is how? How does that present itself to you? That that you sense a connection between subject and interviewer versus when one is not there. How do you perceive that? The number one thing, and keep in mind, when I'm not doing this show, my other job... I'm a strategic PR consultant. I've been doing this for years. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers. So, you know, that's how the Sports PR Summit was born. 
The number one right. thing I would say is body language. When someone doesn't want to be somewhere, there's no eye contact. They're squirming. You can just tell, like, they'd rather be somewhere else. And even when you're interviewing someone in crises, they don't have that bad body language. They're engaged. They're listening. You know, maybe they're going to give you one-word answers or, or not the long answers that you're hoping for, but they at least look to be engaged with you, whereas with other reporters I watch, it's like they want to be anywhere but that place. I, I, I mean, it's a very, very kind evaluation of my connections with coaches or athletes or subjects. I, I Frankly, Brian, I think it's overstated. I don't know that, that I carry any great respect among athletes and coaches who have to do or, or who do countless interviews. But if I could give three simple notions, it would be these. Number one is to be respectful of the subject's time and efficient with the subject's time. In other words, if you were to say, Brian, can I grab you three questions, 90 seconds, honor that. Right. If you're on to the fifth and sixth question, you know better than anybody, given given your past gigs, an athlete and a coach and a team has a lengthy memory. This guy said it was going to be three, and now it's six. Right. Next time, you're not going to have the credibility when you come back with three or six. And obviously, these are more like sideline or, or quick hit situations. Number two is, and I have... I've been too slow, perhaps, to notice this, and that's to reach out. Uh, I think as you as you would in, in any human interaction when you don't need something, be in contact with a coach or a program or a team or an SID for a collegiate team or a media relations head for a professional team or an agent when you don't have a need, just to check in. Just to say, how are you doing? How are things happening for you professionally or personally? Or you had mentioned your son was going to play in this basketball tournament. How did it work out? While that might seem to be manipulative or it might seem to be shallow, I think people regard it with the opposite intent, that this person actually is going to reach out to me without hat in hand, without needing something. And the last thing is, and it's a very, very simple thing, and I don't do it as often as I should. I should do it 100% of the time, and I don't, but I try to. It is so simple, Brian, and it's to write a handwritten note of thanks if someone gives you time, Hmm. if someone sits down with you. And I do that. Uh, Not all the time, not as often as I should, but I try to. I recently just spent time with a with a uh, you know a head coach in college and you know the very first thing I did when I got home was I I wrote a thank you note to him just to thank him for the for the uh, for the time because as we know time is the most precious commodity anybody's got and the more successful folks are the more in demand they are that's in very very precious reserve so those are three very simple ways and and, and I think the other way is to try as best you can to be authentic. And that's tricky because, as I've said a thousand times, it's not like I'm going whitewater rafting with Andrew Luck every other weekend. (laughs) That's not the truth of the dynamic. 
but to be respectful, efficient, open, and listen. Those, I think, uh, are all serve. And they're all utterly common sense when you hear them. Yeah, but it's amazing how many people don't do those things, and that's fantastic advice that you just gave. When you were at Sports PR Summit, it's funny, you said on stage, you said, here are the three things you need to know about storytelling. And everyone pulled out their notebooks, pulled out their phones. It was like, you know, God was giving us the three commandments that were hanging that there's really 13 commandments instead of 10, and here are the three additional ones. I've never seen a room move to write something down faster than they did when you you said these things. But you said, did it move you? Did it surprise you? Did it reveal a transcendent fact? Those are right. the, the when you when, right when I had mentioned that there were three ways really to try to to have a story be memorable. Right, and, and I think that's a very simple workable goal for any story that we're trying to to convey in radio, in television, in print, in any medium. But you want the story to last for a moment or hopefully more than that in the viewer's mind. Does she think of it after the TV is turned off? Does he think of it after the page is turned? And those three ways, and there's obviously a thousand more, but those three, and as I had said at the summit, in order of ascending difficulty, meaning the easiest is did it move somebody? I'm not saying it's easy to move people. It's not. Uh, to find space in their heart or mind and push them one way or another towards something is not that easy, but it's the easiest of those three. Did it move me? Number two, did it surprise me is significantly harder because many stories and, and I would raise my hand at this, can seem to follow a formula, even as you try to treat each on um, its specific moments and merit. And number one, again, did it deliver a transcendent fact, a threshold I'm not certain I've ever crossed in my career? I've, I've, I'm aware of it, tried to do it, but I'm not certain that I ever have. Did it make you look at something differently than you once did? And with a new and or different understanding, a different lens. That, to me, is the highest calling of any reporting or storytelling. And I think those are three ways. There's 103 more, I'm sure. But those are three as a cheat sheet that I try to keep in mind. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. 
The other thing you said at Sports PR Summit, which many people, including myself, took note of, is you said, we want waves, not lines. A line is a box score. A wave is a story. Explain that. Right. And I think that what we want is any story that's worth telling has a high and a low, or to use the most ancient definitions of drama, right, has change and resolution. That if there is no change, if we're just traveling from point A to point B without ever going up or going down, we're really not delivering anything other than a report. A story should wave up and down. It should have a high point. It should have a low point. It should have a turning point. And if it has those points, we're probably going to discover some change to the character. And hopefully, if we're invested to us through what we've experienced in watching, reading, or hearing it. Um, And again, that's a mission I try to answer and don't always do. Sometimes I I think that, uh, and this is, a, a, I think, a recurring flaw that I have in the work that I do, Sometimes I think I'm tabbed with telling stories that are sad and it starts sad and it grows darker and it doesn't take you anywhere other than that, other than down. And down is a line. It's not a wave. So you have to be authentic and true to the story, but I think that structure can be helpful as a guide. I'm sure you're told of stories, moving, compelling stories all the time. People see your pieces and they go, I want Tom to do a story on my story or a story I've heard of. What's the mixture for you with I find my own stories versus I'm going to do a story that was brought to me? I am well below the Mendoza line on pitching my own stories. Uh, I'm, I'd say fewer than two out of ten actually get greenlit. And I'd like to think it's not because I'm a terrible hitter, but it's the quality of the pitching. Um, We just, listen, in media, in what you do, Brian, in what I do, and we could make this case that in many, many, many fields, not all, but many, the greatest currency is ideas. And pitching is a great presentation of ideas. It's a great display. Right, It's great proof to say we had this idea about. Sometimes a story comes, yes, from specific knowledge of an event, but it can also come from a broader idea. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example um, to think of well, what was the aftermath of this one moment that we all saw is a simple idea, and to give that a little more specificity. If we were to think to ourselves, in the last 10 years, what has been a, a notoriously blown call? And then to visit that, visit the characters involved in that call. How did that call affect their lives, if at all? And if so, in what ways? And that's a broad idea, but then we can search for examples that would illustrate it. And then, of course, there's the more straightforward, hey, did you know that this player on our roster has this experience? I think this is worth sharing with people. Um, and I could give you countless examples of that. I mean, uh, uh, from 
uh, here, here's one example of, of a story that we did, Brian, uh, you know, several years ago on game day that we did about Phil Bennett, who at the time, you know, was the defensive coordinator at Baylor. His wife went out jogging on a what seemed to be, you know, a, a fine morning and a sudden storm rolled in and she was struck by lightning and killed. Oh, my God. He had two young children at the time, and in the space of one moment, his life was altered forever. Mm. In having a wonder, as a guy that, as you know, you know the hours that coaches keep, as a guy who now had to remake his life around these two children who were very young at the time, we went back to tell the story because he was at Kansas State when this happened, and now Baylor was going to play Kansas State. That was the hook to tell the story. And even though it had happened more than a decade earlier, uh, Bennett was incredibly moving, talking about the challenges of the, looking at his children after having to tell them that their mom had passed. And in a moment, I'll never forget looking at me and telling me what he told the kids as they looked at them, the three of them alone in the house, everyone else gone, and saying, I'm all you got now. Hmm. Wow. And if you're unmoved by that, then okay. But to me, I think that's universal in its power and in its vulnerability of a guy who, and Phil Bennett is a demonstrative, strong archetypal defensive coach. He's that guy, you know, with the square jaw and the battle chest, and he's a great, great guy. And I think seeing that, now, man, now maybe when teams are scoring touchdowns against Baylor and Baylor's making a defensive stop, you now have a different interest, perhaps, where you didn't have one. And sometimes I think stories could create that, too. Long way to go to give you an example of where stories come from, but that's just one example. Let's look behind the scenes a little bit with your team. How many people are working with you? I know you brought a producer to Sports PR Summit. Uh, how many people are working with you when you're putting together these incredible features on ESPN? Well, and I really mean this when I say I'm, I am – in many ways, the smallest contributor. Uh, I mean, I get to present it, which is fantastic. But uh, believe me, we have the we have just an unparalleled and embarrassment of riches when it comes to the stable of producers that I mean I'm able to work with. I could I could name twenty five right now, from Ben Hauser to John Mitten to Kristen Lapis to Martin Kotobasian to Scott Harves, to Jose Morales, and then, I mean, I could, believe me, to Ben Weber, to Danny Arruda, you, you can hear. I could keep going, believe me, uh, very easily on how tremendous the producers are that we work with. We also are blessed to work with some of the greatest crews in the country. I would say the greatest, whether it be Seventh Movement or Twiz and his production team or Mike Balaka or... These are unbelievable crews. And then we have a phenomenal, both in-house, we have tremendous editors, and out-of-house, we have great editors. 
at Bluefoot and at Victory Pictures and et cetera. And I could go on and on. So it's a it's a an army. And then we're also overseen. And there will there will forever be a you know a creative tension there between you know, scripts that get put together and then editors that need them trimmed down to time. And I've tried to to do my best to be collaborative there. And I'm sure some would say I am, and others would say, Tom, you really need to work on that. But uh, believe me, my contribution I would say is one of many in having a piece on television reach the air. As somebody who's written a book, Brian, I could tell you that nothing is as collaborative as television. Nothing. In a day and age where, you know, we look at social media and the internet and it's, you got to do things in 90 seconds. You got to do things in 60 seconds. I watch your pieces and they're 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And I still feel like they're not long enough, but you have been given this incredible inventory for lack of a better term you know, within SportsCenter and E60 and, and platforms like that. Maybe talk to us a little bit about storytelling in 15 to 20 minutes versus 90 seconds. Well, I can't overstate the the gratitude that I feel and my understanding of how extraordinarily rare and privileged the position I'm in is regarding exactly what you just said. Right, we talked a little bit earlier about time being the most precious commodity. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I have so much time in my part of the process. Many times in gathering, we just worked on a, a 90 minute documentary that aired in prime time on E1 and on E2 on Ryan Leaf with Don Mitten, a tremendous producer. We worked on it for a year. Wow. You know, and then we got 90 minutes to tell it. We told it in 60 minutes on E60 and then 90 minutes prime time. So, so many times I have young reporters and young producers, young journalists who are in TV, and I always tell them, I give them that disclaimer, please, you know, I'm going to give you some things, I'm going to make some suggestions, but it's not lost on me that you're trying to achieve this in 90, 120, 160, 150, three minutes, as opposed to Six, eight, ten, twelve, thirty, sixty, ninety minutes, which is incomparable. But I, but I can say this: from having worked in local TV as a one-man band and having to turn daily stories at ninety seconds, the one thing, or I guess the two things that work, if it's ninety minutes or ninety seconds, the fundamental, the strongest fundamental is sound. Hmm. If you can interview people properly and have them convey the heart of the story. That's what it's about. You're a window. You know, people shouldn't notice the lattice work in the panes. They should just be looking at the view. And that's what sound is about. It connects the viewer to the story. Uh, And the other thing is writing. To try to write in a something I continue to struggle with, you know, not in an not in an overly adjectival or overwrought way, but in a simple, clear way, driven by verbs, to just to write with clarity. Clarity is the ultimate commandment, especially Brian, as you know, because on TV you get one shot, and then it's gone. I realize somebody can go back and watch something on 
online again, but we don't do that either. You get one chance and the story's gone. So if it's unclear, every piece of work is wasted. So clarity in writing and the power of sound, power of the interview. Speaking of sound, one of the things I've noticed so much about your feature pieces, your cadence with your narration, it's absolutely captivating. Is that something you've worked on over the years? Does it come naturally to you? Because I find it keeps me on the edge of my seat when I'm watching one of your features. I actually think, Brian, I've worked harder and harder at tracking over the years because I think I track too slowly. And I think that I, and I sometimes get into uh, arguments with the producers who like to open the tracks up and make them a little, a little slower because I, I'm trying to just say it, just read it and not say, here is a very special sentence that I really like. I hope, and I've worked hard at, trying to get away from that, and I haven't really succeeded, to be honest. I still think it's very hard for me to watch the pieces. I almost never watched them when they first air. Um, I've obviously seen many cuts of them, but uh, many times the weakest part of the pieces that I do are my own track. Uh, that's not to say that there's a lot of people who are great at tracking. I don't know that there are, but um, it's a forever work in progress for me. It's something I need to continue to get better at. So I appreciate you saying that. It's a very kind evaluation. Now, it, I really do think it's it's actually one of the signature parts of your features versus anyone else's is your narration and your cadence with your narration. The other thing I notice, and you know, this is probably you and your team coming together on this, the use of still pictures versus video. Yeah. So. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, most everyone, I'm sure, has seen A Dog's Journey with the dog, Arthur. And right. I swear to you, I have a dog, too, and I rescued the dog. And at the end of the piece, you bring on the song, I Will Follow You. And I lost it. I mean, who's watching that thing that has a dog and doesn't listen to that song and just start bawling? And to me, you know, Brian, let, let me let me interrupt a second because this has caught me. Kristen Lapis, who's just phenomenal, produced that piece. He chose that song, and I, we both, Kristen and myself, we have been really surprised by the sentiments that you're sharing and how often we've heard them. We 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 thought the story was. You know, fascinating story about what what this man, what Michael decided to do, and what they endured in the adventure race and the rescuing of Arthur and all those things. But the emotional response to the story, I, I mean, has shocked me because I don't. I, I love dogs. Don't get me wrong, but I, I just did not think the story held that kind of emotion for viewers. And I was dead wrong. Oh, my goodness. We heard from so many people sharing things like you're sharing very kindly about, my God, I was so emotional when I watched that. And Kristen and I were like, really? We thought people would be more fascinated or captivated or whatever it is. But people were very, very moved by Arthur. And that surprised us. It really did. I'll give you another example. Uh Amazing story. Another one that I just totally bawled at is uh, Logan Schonert, 
the number. Yeah. The young boy yeah. with a brain tumor, his love for Tom Brady. So, you know, you could tell, and, and may, you know this better than I do, but my, my takeaway was that Tom Brady didn't want cameras in for his meeting with the boy, but you had still pictures of Tom Brady signing for for Logan and their interaction. But it was pictures versus video, but it was still very, very powerful. Um, when do you decide to use pics and when do you decide to use video? And is it sometimes decided for you because someone like Tom Brady says, you know what, we're not going to do video, but we'll allow you to use a pic? That's exactly right. However, in, in Brady's case, there is a little bit of a disclaimer in that we did have a little bit of video. Not a lot, um, but he did allow us to shoot a little bit of video. And we decided, and it's wonderful that you've noticed this, we decided not to use it. Huh. Because we thought the still pictures actually preserve and represent more accurately the wonder of the moment for a 10-year-old boy who's meeting his idol. Totally agree. That, and we thought that, you know, you don't even see, see the video. It's that moment captured. It, it's that, that still image. That still image. That's what we decided to show. No, it, it was that, brilliant. That, that's why. Yeah, but it's interesting that you noticed that. The other thing is, I don't think, you know, you've interviewed Tiger Woods in Crises, Manti Teo. We'll get to that in a minute. But I don't think there would be a tougher job, especially I know you're the parent to two kids. I have a daughter who's 12. You're sitting on Logan's bed, and he knows he's going to die, and you're interviewing him. Oh, my God. I mean, just wow. Like, that would be... Out of everything that you do as a journalist, that would be the toughest thing to do. In, in and I've interviewed children in very sensitive situations in the past. Uh, I am a parent, and I, as you mentioned, Brian, I have two kids, uh, our son and our daughter, who um, one is in middle school, the other is in elementary school. And one thing that we always do is I I ask for a parent to be in the room, hmm. off camera, and probably out of the eye line of the child, but in the room, so that if the parent senses in any way that I'm moving into a place that the parent doesn't feel comfortable with, he can tell me. Right. He can stop us. And um, I think we've done that from the very beginning of some of the stories we've done involving children, which are obviously the most heartbreaking stories when when it's about living and dying. And we did the same with Logan, and uh, we're always astounded by how direct a child is. Mm-hmm. How, I don't know if... I wish I had more wisdom to understand why and where that comes from. Maybe there just isn't the cunning or the... Uh, the distance or the politeness or whatever it may be. Maybe it's just not the language that could build layers away from being that direct. But uh, as in the case of Logan, you know, in going through this, what do you want to tell your mom? Uh, Logan Schoenhart, the boy you referred to, who passed away um, shortly after the Patriots won the Super Bowl, who idolized Tom Brady, and Brady had sent him a message um, through his fight through... uh, many, many staged brain.
brain tumor um, that he just wanted to tell his mom he was sorry. And that's obviously heartbreaking and real. You know, I'm sorry, Mom, that I'm dying. And uh, you know, when you hear a mother and you hear a father share that story with you, and then you hear Logan talk about his experience, um, the, the pressure you feel to honor that extraordinary trust that's being placed in you to share this part of a family's journey, it feels massive. Um, and you want to honor the story and tell the truth, but you very much want to honor that trust first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to put it. When I when I think of you and the stories that you do, you're trustworthy. Like, and that's why these people open up with you in a way that, look, I, most of the people that I interview on Sports Business Radio over the last 14 years, I, I have some sort of a relationship with them. And when you have some sort of a relationship with someone, they're going to have a conversation with you that's different than someone they don't know. Most of the people you're interviewing, you don't know, you haven't met before, but they trust you. And that says a lot about you, Tom, because that is not easy to get someone to tell, you know, these these unbelievably emotional stories. Another story that you did was the man in the red bandana about the young man who worked in one of the World Trade Centers, I think the South Tower, and he had a red bandana and he wanted to be part of the fire department and uh, he saved what, 12 people. And I guess my question to you is that was also an incredible story, but of all the stories you've done, that was the story that you turned into a book in 2016. What was it about that story where you said, not only do I want to tell that through video and, and through my platforms that I normally story tell through, but I want to also turn this into a book. Well, I think this, I could talk at you know, too long for us and anyone who'd want to listen to answer that. Uh, but I can give you two very short answers on, on why that story. Number one is when the 9-11 Museum opened in 2014, President Obama was the keynote speaker. And of the 2,977 souls who perished in the attacks, he chose in the keynote to speak only about one by name, one. Wells Crowther, 24 years old, Boston College lacrosse player, who was working at a, a firm called Sandler O'Neill on the 104th floor of the South Tower. And as you described, Brian, uh, after the second plane hit, he was making his way down the only functional stairwell. And rather than continue down, he got to the 78th floor sky lobby uh, the exchange point where express elevators let out, people took local elevators to the highest reaches of the tower. And he just saw a horrific scene where the lower wing of Flight 175 out of Boston had exploded through the south facade of the tower. Uh, you know, there were scores of people dead and dying, and he led a group of people into the stairwell and down towards safety, covering his face with a red bandana. Um, no one knew his name at the time. He got down to the 61st floor, and then he went back up, and he did it again. 
and he let another group down. Ultimately, he made it all the way down himself, only not to leave, but to go and try to help the FDNY at their command post, which was set up in the lobby. And uh, when the tower collapsed, ultimately, months later, his remains were found, the only civilian surrounded by a dozen FDNY firefighters. I've, I've worked on a lot of stories, but no story has lodged in me that deeply. My brother worked on the 81st floor of the South Tower for 15 years. My sister worked across the street at the World Financial Center on the other side of West Street. Uh, there's many, many reasons why 9-11 resonates very deeply in our lives. And this story, this told through one single lens, I just know will stay with me forever. And writing the book was a tremendous challenge as well as a great opportunity. Scott Moore is a penguin reached out and uh, we started our work together on it. Um, And we've just been thrilled with the response to it. It made the bestseller list and um, is now, you know, universities are assigning it as their freshman year reading and high schools as their all school read. And we've just been really humbled by the reaction to it. Well, I'm going to look at, I was just going to add, but if you look at the, really the ultimate definition of, you know, really the archetypal definition of a hero. That's what Wells Crowther was. And it goes back to the formula we discussed earlier that you brought up at Sports PR Summit. Did it move you? Absolutely. Did it surprise you? Absolutely. Did it reveal a transcendent fact? Yes. It had those three elements in the story. Just an incredible story. I know you only have a little bit of time, and there's several other things I want to get to. So let me talk to you about uh, something else you said at Sports PR Summit. And again, you've interviewed Tiger Woods in 2010. You were the first person that interviewed him when he was in crises. You've interviewed Manti Teo. You said, even if they won't answer, you have to ask the tough question. If not, the viewer asks, where is my envoy? Or where are you, my envoy, I think is, is how you said it. So essentially, you feel like you have a duty to your audience that is tuning in to ask the tough question. And even if they don't answer, then, you know, you did your job. So it's interesting when people are in crises. Again, my strategic PR hat, if I wear that for a minute, a lot of people will give you bad body language. Sometimes they'll give you the the one or two word answers because they're trying to play defense and they're going with the less is more approach. How does it differ for you when you interview someone in crises versus interviewing someone when they're not in crises? Well, let me, let me start, Brian, with, with the use of a term, which I think is a little bit of a tricky term, and that's the term tough question. Okay. Um, I, I don't know that, that there are particularly tough questions. I I think that there are direct questions, and they're often perceived as tough or hard. Um, but I think they can they can be asked fairly. It, any question can be asked fairly if it's asked in an open-ended way and hopefully in a neutral way. Now that doesn't mean you'd want to answer it. Uh, you know, a, a question like not in a crisis or accountability setting. In an emotional story, a question that just no one in your life typically asks you, Brian, right? If, if uh, God forbid, there's somebody you love who has someone close to them who is ill or 
someone who suffered, you know, a terrible injury, whatever it may be, a question like, what's your fear? That is a very, quote-unquote, tough question. Mm-hmm. But it's just short, open, and direct. And I think so much in life, in, in, in what we do and well beyond it, right, is a byproduct of expectation. And I think letting someone know, you obviously never let anybody know the questions you're going to ask in advance, ever. But to say to somebody, listen, the questions are going to be straightforward, and I'm going to pay you the respect of asking you them directly. Because if, if I don't, this won't serve you, and it won't serve us. It won't serve anyone or anything. And that's why perhaps asking Tiger a question like, why did you get married? Which is a, you can certainly label as a tough question. I mean, it took me forever, for example, in a sideline role to figure out, I can't believe how long it took me to realize just this quest to ask this question. What went wrong? Hmm. Is that a tough question? You know, that's the question I asked Nick Saban after Bama lost in the last second of the national championship. Right. What went wrong? And... I, it's certainly not a soft question, but it's also not a question that is, that is burdened with, let me show how much I know or how smart I can be. Because <laughs> I think that's what a viewer, a viewer just wants to God, damn, you were leading, you were the fate. You know, what went wrong? Right. It took me forever to realize that's a valuable question. So I think by asking a question directly, but in an open way and in a neutral way, it goes a long way. It does. And listen, there's obviously questions that people don't want to answer, and we understand that. But asking them, that's what we do, and then it's up to the subject to answer any way he wishes. You're you know, calling. I'm, 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 I'm also a fan, Brian, of the question. You know, I use this word, uh, you know, a ton. I use the word characterize because I think it's a neutral word. Um, and, you know, uh, we have John Sawatsky at ESPN as an interview guru who has taught me a ton and taught everybody at ESPN who's in the role of interviewing a ton. Uh, and one of his big words is characterize. And so I think, you know, to say to somebody, for example, how would you characterize your team's effort? You know, if a team failed. Fair question. I, I just think, yeah, fair question. It doesn't, it's not a soft question. It's not a quote-unquote hard question. It's fair. Right? It's fair. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The Sports PR Summit Social Media Workshop returns to San Francisco on Wednesday, July 26, 2017 at Twitter headquarters, an invite-only venue. The full-day, invite-only event for senior digital and social media professionals working in sports provides an opportunity to hear and learn from top media, sports, and technology brands. Attendees leave with a better understanding of how to plan and distribute digital content, engage fans online, and monetize their efforts in the sports digital environment. View the event schedule and register to attend at sportsprsummit.com. I hope to see you on July 26th. Now back to our conversation. Going back to what you just said about interviewing people specifically in crises, 
You said you would never give someone questions in advance. We had Jeremy Schapp, who I know you know and have tremendous respect for at Sports PR Summit a few years ago, also did a conversation with uh, Rick Buecher. And, you know, he said it really varies. Like he said, uh, the takeaway for me was he said, you got to get him in the seat. So if there was an if there was a negotiation over, do I need to show you some of the questions I'm going to ask this person in crises in advance to get them in the seat, then maybe I'll do it. In other cases, no, I'm not going to give my my questions in advance for you. Is it like absolutely firm? Like, I don't care about getting the person in the seat. I will not give the questions in advance. Or is that you and your team deciding well, if we can be the first ones to interview Tiger Woods, maybe we will give Mark Steinberg a few questions in advance. Right, right. Well, and, and we didn't. I, and I listen. I, I have the uh, you know Jeremy to me is the best in the business. I think there's a difference though between parameters and specifics. Mm-hmm. Parameters, yeah, we give all the time. And I hope I don't sound like a politician right now, but I do think parameters are oftentimes part of a difficult interview to, to get. Just say, listen, just so you know, we have to ask about X, Y, and Z. He can answer any way he wants, but we also know we're going to ask about A, B, and C, too. But in terms of the exact language of a question, no, I I mean, I I did the first sit down with Art Bryles, and believe me, that was a very tricky negotiation uh, with with Jimmy Sexton and with Art himself and Jimmy's agent. And ultimately, you know, there were very hard questions to ask Art Bryles in the wake of the Baylor scandal. And one of the questions I asked, which, again, I think is a quote-unquote a tough question, I said, you know, Art, this is the very end of the interview, I said, Art, you won a lot of games. But respectfully, what, if anything, did you lose? And his answer was, some of my soul. Hmm. I remember that. You know, again, he could answer that any way he wants, um, but that's a powerful answer. And you know, and then it was the follow. Many times, as you know too, Brian, it's the follow up, it's the follow to questions that that really yield the best answers too. So uh, let's change topics for a moment. The state of journalism right now. I go speak in journalism classes, as I'm sure you do, and it is. An evolving, uh, I'm not going to say declining industry, but it's certainly different than it was. And look, ESPN just had recent layoffs. And, you know, I think one of the things that the mainstream media is struggling with is how do we pivot to become more sustainable? And, you know, again, you have the fortune of being able to tell long form stories and tell them on a number of different platforms. But you know, I have friends that work at local newspapers and local TV stations and, you know, obviously, again, ESPN and Sports Illustrated. There's a lot of entities out there that are shrinking because of the evolving industry that's in right now. Like, where do you see this all going? Or do you do you not really? I know you're a busy guy, so maybe you don't have time to think about it. But when I'm doing things like Sports PR Summit and I'm putting together intelligent conversations, I'm thinking about where is this industry going? No, I think it's a great question. I think anyone who doesn't think about it is in denial. Uh, There's no question that how content gets consumed, 
how it gets distributed, how it gets monetized, are crucial questions to the lifeblood of the business. Uh, from taking a look, for example, at the New York Times and, and how they found a way to turn ultimately to a paywall and to have an explosion in digital subscription as well as their printed newspaper, uh, I think is a fascinating case study. When it comes to broadcast, listen, it's no secret ESPN has lost subscribers, but has also placed a large, large bet on what a lot of people would perceive, Brian, and I don't know if you'd agree, to be the last great bulwark against video on demand, and that's live events. And if you want to look at how the NBA playoffs rated, that bet, at least for now, despite how high the, the uh, how high all league rights have become, whether that's a bubble or not is a topic for another time, the NBA playoffs rated well. They rated well. You know, the Super Bowl rates well. The NFL playoffs rate well. Um, live events, award shows, things that can't be VOD'd rate well. So in the other part, the part which is, well, what can be watched on demand? Can you create signature content? You know, OJ Made in America is signature content. Amazing. So much so that it Right, uh, so much so that it did won the highest award yeah. in any venue of storytelling by winning the Oscar in documentary. So it, if you can create, I think what it does is it places an even greater premium on signature storytelling and content, as well as how you deliver the live event. I think in a way, the pressures of the business are clarifying. They're demanding, but also clarifying. That would be my answer. Oh, that's a great answer, and you're right about the O.J. Made in America. That was the best documentary I've seen, bar none, long-form documentary. When I first saw it, it was like, what, five uh, five nights? I was like, five nights? Because I lived in L.A. when all of that happened and had a front-row seat you know, with Rodney King and, and just all of that stuff. And so it really hit home with me in a way that it might not have if I hadn't lived there during that time. And... I just thought at the end of it, I was like, this could have been five more nights because it was so well done. And it it was just, wow. It it transcended so many different things. It wasn't a sports documentary. It wasn't a news documentary. It, It was, it was just so well done and so compelling. So I totally agree with you. I mean, I joke with my friends, you're going to laugh at this, but, uh, if, ESPN just like ran your features all day long. Like <laughs> I'd be fine with that. I would just sit there and watch all of your features loop back to back to back to back. And Brian, yeah, well, yeah, we we need to get you out more then, Brian. We really do. No, um, I, as, as listen, as for OJ, I will just say this. Um, you know, Ezra Edelman and uh, Libby Geist and the whole team with Thirty for Thirty that, that put that together. Um, I think that, and people might think this is just a heresy, I think O.J. Made in America could have been nominated for Best Picture, not Documentary. Yeah, picture. I would agree. And I think it could have got a nomination in that category, too. Um, I just think it was a brilliant piece of work, and obviously so do many people. You have a son and a daughter, as we discussed earlier. Uh, are they interested in what you do? I think I read an interview when they were few years younger, you said as they get older, you might like to take them on some of your assignments and have them see what dad does for work. Are they at that point yet? 
Uh, you know, our, um, our son, Jack, loves sport. He loves everything related to sport. He's come uh, to game day. Uh, he comes to at least one game day trip a year, and he also usually comes to a bowl game, whether it's the semi. Usually it's the semi. Uh, for the past eight years, they have come uh, with me at different times to things like Wimbledon, um, which is a wonderful experience for them well beyond the sporting part of it. Uh, but I'd say he's more interested than our daughter is, who is, uh, they're very different souls and have very different natures. And, you know, um, we're just the luckiest people, Diane and I, that they're healthy and engaged and happy and we hope humble and grateful. I saw where you said your wife, Diane, is your sounding board and she purchases every piece of clothing that you wear on air. True. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that may be overstated, but also <laughs> only slightly, only slightly. I use this, she rolls her eyes every time I say this. Um, uh, I just use the same description of her all the time, Brian. She's, listen, the seating chart may change a little bit, but basically she's three seats from Jesus. That's who she is. Wow. You are a lucky, lucky guy. Let me tell you that. Um, last question, and I know Rick asked you about this a little bit at Sports PR Summit, but but I'll ask you again so our listeners can hear. Why are you not on social media? We just had a conversation. I I I I, I can't make this up. We had a conversation yesterday <laughs> with our son and daughter about this because our son, who is thirteen, would like to be on Instagram, and I said, for now, no. And I, gave, I said, not never, but for now, no. And I gave him my reasons, and, uh, and he wasn't buying it, I'll tell you that. The, the truth is, as I said there, I'm just pathetically thin-skinned, and I think I see a lot of Twitter as, and maybe I'm wrong, but I see a lot of Twitter as negative. I should be on social media. It's, it's a mistake for me not to be. But the three reasons against it for me are, and you can judge him, that's the biggest reason, by the way, is my own, sort of my own thin skin. But beyond that, number one is it's a huge time drain. Number two is I think it can create a layer between what's real and what's presented. Hmm. And I already do that enough to a degree, try to pierce that in the work that we do. And, and number three, that it, if I want to have a real connection um, I got to hope that my work does that and, and maybe it doesn't and it falls short, but if that's the case, then I got to get better at, at my work, not better at my Twitter post, <laughs> and not better at my Instagram photo. I got to get better at the story. Um, and maybe the last one is just that, you know what? I'm just not that interesting. The stories are, but I don't know that the, people don't care much about the storyteller. Well, it's interesting because a lot of journalists now, like their editors or the people they work for, they're like, this is part of the job. You have to be out there pushing your brand, your content, everything that you're producing. This is another way that we can promote that content. So, No question. And that's a mistake for me. That is. That's a mistake. No doubt. And I'm, believe me, I still have people tell me, and I maybe I will correct it this year. It's not never. It's just not now. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. And your reasons are, are really, really good. And I'm I'm very fascinated. I just had the same conversation with my 12-year-old about social media, and I let her get on Instagram. But our rule was, I have access to your account anytime I want. I can shut that thing down in two seconds if I see anything on there that's inappropriate. It's a uh, an account where you have to ask to, you have to request to be a follower. So like, 
I can see uh, if she's friends with the right people, so to speak. So I can really safeguard what she's doing. And it's allowing her to, I guess, uh, be in that world a little bit without overexposure, so to speak. So, it, But it's a struggle that so many of my friends who are parents are also going through with kids in this age group that are like, do you let them on? Do you not let them on? And I don't think there's a, a black or white answer, a yes or no, but it's an interesting discussion. We could probably do a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> I don't I don't think my son would be listening to it, I'll tell you that. He'd just be saying, let me get on, let me get on. Oh, my gosh. Tom, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am such a, a fan of your work. Keep up the great work. Thank you again for being at Sports PR Summit in New York, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so, so much for having me, Brian. It was very, very kind, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. As some of you may know, in addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the founder of the Sports PR Summit. We've been building something very special there since when we launched in 2013. Noteworthy people such as Adam Silver, David Stern, Jamel Hill, Grant Hill, Tom Rinaldi, Lisa Leslie, Michael Vick, Jeremy Schapp, and Stephen Ross are just a few of the names who have joined us on stage to provide unique insight. We recently introduced the Sports PR Summit Collective. It's a way for everyone to stay in touch 24-7, 365. The collective is the next evolution for our community of PR practitioners, media, and athletes. You'll find a counterpart day and night to ask and answer questions, share your inspiration, connect with colleagues, and celebrate victories. The technology that powers the Sports PR Summit Collective allows us to bring more valuable resources to our members and the industry. These include a members-only job board, a mentorship program, industry awards, courses in skill building, networking opportunities, and mastermind groups. You'll also still have the opportunity to attend our annual Sports PR Summit event in New York City, in person or virtually. And for the first time, we're also allowing access to students and entry-level communications executives. If you're a PR practitioner or a member of the media or an athlete, this is the community for you. Visit sportsprsummit.com for more information and to join the Sports PR Summit Collective. Now, here's Brian's interview with Bonnie Bernstein of Walk Swiftly Productions from March 2018. My guest is someone who has become a friend, someone I've admired from afar for a long time. She's a longtime sports journalist. She's worked for ESPN and ABC, CBS. She served as an executive with Campus Insiders. She has her own company, Walk Swiftly Productions. You can follow her on Twitter at Bonnie Bernstein. She's another BB. Bonnie, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm well, and listening to you try to say the name of my production company makes me think maybe I should have come up with something that's easier to pronounce. <laughs> I think it's good. Walk swiftly production. But if you try to say it all together, walk swiftly production. So wait, yeah. why the name? Let's start there. Why walk swiftly? How did you come up with that? Okay, so when the time comes to finally write the book, the book, the name of the book will be Walk Swiftly with Purpose. Okay. And and the story behind that is that I live in New York. Uh, if you've spent time in New York, you know that uh, New Yorkers tend to be rather fast-paced and focused. 
And I was walking on 57th, close to 5th Avenue one day, and I just, you know, took the time to observe the surroundings. And I realized that if you just watch people walking down the street, you can actually get a sense for their personality or what's on their mind. It's, it's sort of my, my walking version of Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, where you can make that snap judgment immediately about somebody. Because you can tell if somebody's walking swiftly with their head down, they're trying to get someplace, or they're deep in thought, or they're on a mission. Uh, and, you know, other people may be a bit more lackadaisical in their pace, maybe more leisurely. And, you know, so I just, it was an observation I made that for whatever reason resonated with me, maybe that the type A in me <laughs> resonated with. And so, yeah, I, it, production companies, they tell you to come up with something original, so... That was the best I can do on the day that I was on the phone with my attorney trying to figure out how we were going to call this LLC. I like it. And we'll come back to uh, (laughs) being an entrepreneur later in the conversation. So you and I have really gotten to know each other in the last few years. Uh, You've been a part of my Sports PR Summit event. You do such a great job conducting the onstage conversations. We'll talk about the conversation you're going to be moderating this year in a little bit. But I want to talk about your career because, again, like I said, you're someone I've admired from afar for a long time, and you've really been a trailblazer in this industry for female sportscasters. And at what age did you say, you know what, I love sports, I might want to be a sportscaster one day? Was that something that you knew early on, or did it come later? No, I had a very specific epiphany that went down when I was 12 or 13, my parents were born and bred in Brooklyn, and they were diehard Dodgers fans, but when they bolted to the West Coast, um, there was a, a bit of a gap. They weren't going to be Yankees fans, and when the Mets came along, that was their team. And so by birth, I was a Mets fan, and my parents would take me and my sister and brother a couple times a year to a game. And and I say this bearing in mind that, you know, it, it truly was <laughs> a day and age when things were a little bit safer, and so I'd tell my parents I was going to go to the restroom and lo and behold i would wind up exploring every inch of shea stadium (laughs) and one day uh i stumbled upon what was called the diamond club and i walked through the glass doors and to my left there was the mets world series trophy there was only one pre-1986 from the late 60s and um and then on the other side of the room i saw a security guard so my little 12, 13-year-old self walked up to the security guard in my little ponytails, and I said, what are you doing, sir? He said, I'm guarding the press box. I said, what's the press box? So he escorted me into the press box and let me hang out there for a little while, and I sat in the chair where the Sports Illustrated reporter was covering the game that night, watched the Mets take BP, and I was sold. And that was just sort of my my aha moment that I realized that I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated when I grew up. And while I've, you know, shifted a little bit and obviously wound up in broadcasting, uh, I realized very early on that sports was a passion that if I was lucky enough, I would make a career out of. And um, fortunately, I'm somehow able to pay my mortgage. So that's a good thing, right? (laughs) It is a good thing. So you were an athlete, too, a college athlete. You were an academic All-America in gymnastics at University of Maryland. How did being an athlete help you for now your your role as a sportscaster and working in sports? 
it's been critical. And it's the one thing that I always share when people say, well, women shouldn't be talking about football because they play football. First and foremost, I would say a good chunk of the male reporters who cover football didn't play either. Um, but I think what being able to compete at a Division One level in any sport gives you the ability to do is live in the mindset of a highly competitive athlete because that's not really sport-specific. That competitive mentality um, not only makes you successful as an athlete, but you know when you think about it, that's a, a critical life skill, helps make you successful in your adult life, in your professional life. And so I think going through that experience as a collegiate gymnast where there would be three days a week where we were up at 6 o'clock either lifting or running on the track and we would be in the gym training three hours a day and my coach um, placed a heavy emphasis on academic achievement and he was extraordinarily accommodating. You know, he would, if we had exams to study for, he would even come in and let us train early, but we always had to get the training in. And so these skills of developing a work ethic, being a good team player, understanding the importance of time management and how you have to juggle things to make it all work, um, and the mentality, that, that psychological that mindset that you have to have to just shut everything out. And think about it for gymnastics, and you know, I think arguably the most difficult event is the balance beam, where it's four inches wide, and you are doing tricks that are of high difficulty, of high risk. You have to shut everything out in order to be able to succeed on that apparatus and you know in in anything in any sport and so that i I think that skill set that you develop when you compete at that high of a level has been so valuable in in just being able to relate to athletes to coaches to folks in management when i'm talking to them on a daily basis now that's really good to compare that skill set. So, you know, I mentioned earlier you've really been one of the trailblazers for women in sports casting. In 1993, KRNV TV in Reno, Nevada, you became the first ever female weekday sports anchor. What was that like? It was completely unanticipated. So to back it up a little bit further, and I I think it's helpful, especially for young, aspiring journalists to understand, you know, I I hear, come across so many folks who say, oh, you know, I want to work at ESPN when I grow up. Maybe that's a little bit different now because there are so many different platforms. And they're so singularly focused on making it in TV that they may turn down other opportunities in radio, in print, maybe in public relations. Maybe it's not exactly what they're focused on, but they don't realize the value of the opportunity. So before I got to KRNB in Reno, my first job out of school was at a startup country radio station. Nice. <laughs> I was the news and sports director. <laughs> um, and, you know, drove around in a big white van with a big old cowboy boot on it, and it was Kicks 106, and I would literally traipse up and down the entire state of Delaware covering <laughs> sports <laughs> and news. And it was an invaluable experience. And then stayed in the same market, eastern shore of Maryland, Delaware, and went to Salisbury, Maryland, where I was hired as a general assignment news reporter and then became the weekend anchor also in news. So by the time I got to KRNV, I had already started developing my um, news reporting chops because I covered the government beat, I covered the court beat, I covered the cop beat, which is all essential when you think about how much crossover there is uh, these days. 
um, news-related sports stories or sports-related news stories, however you want to look at it, having, you know, having that reporting experience is valuable. When I got <laughs> the opportunity to switch from general assignment news to full-time sports at Channel 4 in Reno, which was the NBC affiliate, I was actually leaving. I, I decided that I really wanted to be in sports full-time, and I was just sort of volunteering on the weekends, but I knew ultimately that's where my, my passion was. And so I was shopping my tapes around, and this was around the time when the Orlando Magic was starting up. And I was offered a position at the CBS affiliate. Um, they were adding another reporter in Orlando, and I, I'd committed to taking that job. So I came back. I went to my GM's office to tell him I was leaving, and he goes, well, what you don't realize is, first of all, we knew you were away <laughs> interviewing for another job. But while you were gone, we also decided that we were going to promote you. So you need to stay. And, I mean, I, when you're working in these teeny tiny markets and of the 200-some-odd media markets, mm -hmm. um, Reno was like 120. <laughs> yeah. Not so high really on the list. No. So they don't, you know, they don't give you contracts or anything. You're not obligated to do anything. But... You know, understanding that there, to that point, was not a female who was given the opportunity to anchor Monday through Friday. I did want to really start honing my anchoring skills because at that point I was predominantly reporting. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay. And so I did for another, I think, half year or so. And it was such a great decision because, you know, I, I take the, the term trailblazing. Um, very graciously, it's uh, maybe I, I kind of joke that it's it's more a byproduct of me being around in the business more than it is me actually blazing a trail. Because when I think of a trailblazer, I think of you know uh, Leslie Visser and Gail Gardner and and the women, albeit there weren't many, but the women that I looked up to when I was younger. But it was meaningful because it was a first. It was meaningful because while it was a first, the community really embraced it. Um, and I worked really hard to build roots in the community. And to this day, Bri, it's really cool because I will get hit up on Twitter from somebody who lives in Reno and still lives in Reno and said, you know, we remember watching you on oh, that's great. And, and we're just excited to see where your career has gone. So it that's was, so it cool. Was, it was a really special time. Is there anyone around that time when you were first starting out in the business that mentored you and you said, gosh, their advice or their mentorship really made a difference for me? Oh, my gosh, no. I There were people I looked up to and there were people I tried, um, especially from a work ethic standpoint and a credibility standpoint, that I tried to emulate. But when I was working in local radio and local TV, I, I didn't have anybody. Uh, and I really didn't have anybody, quite frankly, until I got to CBS. So I was at ESPN three years, and I was just trying to figure it out on my own. ESPN hired me when I was 24. And while I had met Leslie Visser, funny enough, my senior year at the University of Maryland, I was interning. Um, if some of your podcast listeners are in their you know, late 30s, 40s, and a little bit older, they'll, they may remember George Michael's sports machine. Oh, yeah. So I interned for George, who was the sports director. He was a legend. In D.C. Oh my gosh, yeah, he was. It was it was Sports Center before it was. I mean, right. 
ESPN started when it was 79, but, you know, it took a while to, to build traction and stuff. But, you know, George was a legend. And I was out at Redskins Park one day, and that's when I first met Leslie Visser, and, and I was like the total fangirl. Oh, my God, I want to be like you when I grow up. And she gave me her business card, and she was lovely. And I let her know when I got for my first job at the radio station in Delaware. But, you know, we really didn't have regular contact. And maybe that's on me because – you know, I I always talk to um, aspiring sportscasters and women in particular about, you know, making your ambition a daily commitment. And I was ambitious, but I didn't really yet understand the value of building the network and, and for having mentors. So I didn't truly have a mentor until I was 28. And it's something, Brian, I think about all the time because inevitably – uh, we all make mistakes, and that's part of growing up. And we and and life is a continual process of evolution. But if you have the right mentor who is open to sharing the peaks and valleys of his or her career, it's it is it's insightful and it's empowering, and it can actually, to a certain degree, help um, help you carve your path. Because when you hear about other people's stories, other bumps in the road they hit, other challenges, and what that experience was like, and how they worked to overcome them, you know, it, it puts you in a place where you know what to expect, and you know how to react accordingly, whereas if you were not empowered with that information, it just sort of hits you in the face, and you're like, whoa. So um, mentoring has become so important to me. Um, and it's something that I take very seriously, and um, there are actually a couple um, women out there who are rising up the ranks and, um, you know, aspiring journalists at the University of Maryland, and it's it's really a fulfilling experience Anytime I have the, the chance to connect with them and, you know, listen to what they're doing, watch what they're doing, critique their tapes, and, and you know, try to share stories and anecdotes that are hopefully helpful to them. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. I, I want to get into some uh, details with you on a few different topics. First of all, and, and I've talked to Tom Rinaldi and John Wertheim and other people about this, Give me your recipe for effective storytelling. If someone comes to you and they're either pitching you a story or you're looking to come up with a interesting story on your own, give me some of your recipe for effective storytelling. 
Well, for Rinaldi, I know it's just do whatever you need to do to make him cry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because he's so good at it. And when you had him at the summit last year, he was so riveting. Yeah, he really was. It was amazing was. how... Um, attentive, the entire audience, how everybody was like hanging on Tom's every word. And he truly is one of the best. Um, For me, it's about how are you asking questions that elicit responses that create an emotional connection with your audience? Like my goal when I go in to do any interview, a couple of things. You want to make them laugh, you want to make them cry. But most important, you want the most ardent fan of the person or the team that you're talking to to come away saying, huh, for as much as I know about that person or team or whoever it is that you're interviewing, I learned something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? That comes from preparation. And my mantra is make sure that you are going beyond page one of search. We have so much information at our fingertips. And how do we leverage that information to have the most fascinating, intriguing, insightful, colorful, meaningful interviews that we can. So part of that is doing search and and going beyond page one to come up with some little nugget of information that's probably pretty meaningful to the interviewee, but they probably don't get asked about it. Another great tool is you know, call people you know that that other person knows and ask them to share about their experiences and their times with that person. Because then when you, it comes full circle when you reference that conversation with the person you're interviewing. And number one, it makes their face light up. Number two, it says, wow, you've really done your homework. And when the person on the other side of the camera realizes, or, you know, if you're doing a phone interview or what have you, but there's, there's this moment when they realize this isn't just the average run-of-the-mill interview. And when they understand that you went the extra mile to make this interview the best it could possibly be, it's amazing, Brian, the way the dynamic changes. And, and there's this initial, and understandably so, uh, there's this initial wall that's up when you're interviewing somebody for the first time. Now, I, I'd like to think I have that the type of personality that hopefully makes people feel comfortable, but sometimes that that doesn't even impact it. But when they realize that you've gone the extra mile to do the preparation, something clicks, and they're able to relax, and they're able to open up. And, and those truly are the best types of interviews. So when it comes to storytelling, that sort of um, – Hopefully that gives you a little bit of a window into my process. And the net of that is that they share anecdotes that are new and fresh and very personal to them. And that enables the interview to create an emotional connection with the audience. No, I couldn't agree more. I think preparation is something that's so underrated. So many people don't do it. You're right. It is pretty easy to search for someone's uh, information on the internet now and, and find those little nuggets. I think it's great advice to talk to other people who know the person that you're going to be interviewing. One of the things that you're really good at is conducting the quick hit interview. So you were a sideline reporter, NCAA tournament, NFL games, NCAA games for many, many years. And it's so hard. I've talked to Tom about this too, because you have such a finite 
amount of time. It's like, hey, we're going to throw to you for 45 seconds, and you've got to... You know that person has... They don't want anything to do with you. Right. <laughs> Which so, is so, a bonus, right? <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, like Greg Popovich. What's your advice there when you have such a small window of time to interview someone, and you're trying to get something good for your, your viewer or your listener? Well... You have a small amount of time to do the interview, but you have an entire half to figure out what you're going to say. So make the most of it. I have uh, a bit of a quirky process. I literally log every play in a game. So you can imagine when, like, Peyton Manning was running no huddle, hurry up, and waving his arms and flapping. You never know when the ball is going to snap, and you're just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I, my hand, when I would cover Colts games or when I would cover an Oregon game when they're running tempo – My hand is so tired (laughs) from writing. But that is part of the process because not only do I log every play, but I have, I'll just stick with football, for example. So I circle every third down because that enables me to quickly calculate what third down conversion looks like. I put a box around um, a big tackle or a sack so, you know, I, I have these little symbols or I'll put a star by a huge play. And then I have a separate page where I start making notes about patterns or critical points in a game. So as I'm closing in on halftime, I'll go back and, and I'm constantly keeping tabs on that list. Say, okay, is this still important? Because, you know, sometimes something that's important early in the game, something else has happened that takes precedence. So I'm constantly keeping tabs on that list. So by the time I get to that actual very teeny tiny window when the person you're interviewing doesn't want to talk to you, I know where I need to go. So that's part one. But part two is always keeping in mind that the reporter is the voice of the fan. Your number one priority is asking the question that the fan wants to know. So between my list and always keeping the fan's perspective in mind, it's actually pretty easy to come up with the question, except when there's a huge play just before halftime that nobody anticipated, (laughs) and then all of those notes and all that logging goes out the window, and then you can just forget about what I said the last 45 seconds. But but then it also makes it obvious, right, because you want to be able to capture that excitement of what literally just happened and tap the coach or tap the player or whatever for that. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> but that's, I like your process. I like the fact that, cause you can it's go back. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous. There's got to be an app though, you know right? What? Where you can just like talk into your iPhone and, and transcribe it that way. So your hand doesn't hurt at the end of the half. Right. Yeah. Especially in cold weather, because nobody thinks about this. Cold weather games suck. You can't talk. You try, your, your face is frozen, so you try to enunciate as best as you can, and it comes out as though you were born and raised on Mars. And then you can't write. Or if it's raining, you're all, it just, the Mother Nature does a job on your notes. So there are all these things that you learn as a sideline reporter that I'm sure the fan at home doesn't think about, and they don't, probably don't care, nor should they. But Lord knows there are the elements that make <laughs> the job of a sideline reporter way more challenging than it ever needs to be. Um, but that said, I, I say all of that tongue-in-cheek because at the end of the day, the access that you have as a sideline reporter, being on the field, being privy to conversations that the cameras don't catch, and the opportunity to relay that, whether that's actually on the broadcast or now, 
um, you know, you have another channel through social media. It it really is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the 10 years that I did it. Bonnie, we are in the midst of the Me Too and Time's Up era. We're going to talk oh, about your... It, it's it's great. And, you know, again, you and I have talked. I have a 13-year-old daughter. I have four sisters. Like, I think this has been long overdue. And I want to talk about the panel discussion that you're going to moderate at Sports PR Summit. Before I get there, you have faced adversity that I've never had to face. I'm a man in a sports world. When you are going to interview mostly men, because that's who's coaching these teams, how do you earn their respect Show them that you're more than just a pretty face and get them to take you seriously. Because, again, that's something I've never had to uh, endure. And I can't imagine coming from, you know, where you've come from to earn that respect now, what that process has been like. Uh, it's an interesting process, and it's something that I thought a lot about when I was younger. So preparation is key, like everything else. When I would sit down with somebody for the first time in the small talk when you were getting mic'd up and they were adjusting camera shots and lights and all that stuff, I'd just start talking X's and O's. I would reference something that happened in the game last week or something that I happened to see on film with Phil Sims when I was sitting in the film room and he was pointing stuff out to me. So that says immediately she's serious right but back it up even even before we start having that conversation whenever and this is it's not exclusive to interviews but whenever i meet somebody firm handshake look them in the eye and smile it's amazing it's it's almost a dichotomy because for a woman i probably have a pretty firm handshake but you make that eye contact and you have a smile and it says i'm a positive person i'm excited to be here but that handshake says, I mean business. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you do that. And then you do the small talk X's and O's. So by the time the interview starts and the cameras are rolling, the environment's been set. Now what do you do with it? So, you know, it's all that the public sees are the excerpts from the entire interview that we choose to use. But there is so much stuff that you don't see that plays a role in the quality of interview that you do see, if that makes sense. No, and I think that's such great advice. We have so many uh, journalism students who listen to this show, and I, I think the advice you just gave is like golden. I would red flag it for anyone listening to this. On May 22 in New York at the Players' Tribune, the 2018 Sports PR Summit is going to take place. You did such a great job last year interviewing Oliver Luck from the NCAA on stage. You've been at our event in San Francisco at Twitter. Um, This, I think, is going to be, if not the most important, one of the most important conversations we've had at Sports PR Summit in six years, and it's called Navigating PR in the Zero Tolerance Era. There's so many challenges that PR people, legal departments, and HR executives are having in this era right now because you've kind of got the PR people who may want to be transparent, but they can't say certain things because of HR or legal saying, nope, we can't say anything. This is a legal case. And there's all these different dynamics in play. But you know, maybe give our our audience a little bit of a preview as to what that conversation at Sports PR Summit is going to be like. 
you articulating it makes me nervous. I, I'm, I, it's funny because I, honestly, Brian, I, so many folks have asked over the course of, you know, 20 some odd years, you never seem nervous. Were you ever nervous? I've never been nervous on the air. I was a little bit jittery. The first Super Bowl I ever did, um, it was Giants-Ravens. Giants got blown out. Giants from my team. I was on the Giants sideline. And when I was getting ready to interview Jim Fossil, I was a little bit nervous. The next time I was super nervous was giving my uh, maid of honor speech for my sister's wedding. This panel has me nervous. And it has me nervous because I know how important it is. You know, the, the Harvey Weinstein case has put us societally in a position where we need to talk about this stuff now. It was, it was hidden under the rug for so many years. It's not just in the Hollywood industry. It's not just in the broadcast industry. It's not just on Wall Street. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. And, and the summit that you put on is one of the best in the business because it is all high-level executives who've been down these roads, they're all dealing with the same challenges, and they come to your event because they want to hear rich, robust, meaningful, impactful conversations where we come out of these panels with, you know, actionable items that they can then take back to their respective workplaces. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, and and I've spoken about it at length already with some of our panelists, and we really need to stick to PR and communications because it's so easy for this conversation to go off the rails and get into, you know, what we do from a legal perspective, from an HR perspective, personal stories and all of those things. But we have to focus on PR. And it's not just Me Too, and I know we sort of tooled around with calling it zero, you know, um, PR communications in the Me Too era. And it's not just about women. It's about a culture that is now being brought to light in our industry and how the messaging from a PR and communication standpoint needs to evolve. You know, in this day and age of social media, you can't get away with no comment anymore because no comment sounds like an admission or a concession of guilt and whether that's true or not, and we can, we can pound the importance of due process till the cows come home, but you know what? The court of public opinion, if they make that decision before due process takes place, you as a company are screwed. And so how does PR and communications, those departments, function in a way where there is uh, important and transparent messaging going out to the public, but they, they are not infuriating the legal folks. Um, furthermore, how the messaging goes out can't sound like legalese because it's a massive red flag in the public. Um, I remember, and, and you and I spoke specifically about the statement that USOC put out mandating that, you know, in the, in the wake of the whole Larry Nasser case in gymnastics, that, you know, USA Gymnastics, their entire board needed to step down. And there was specific language in that statement that said, you know, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, um, you know, this isn't an admission of guilt. This is more about, you know, creating a new culture. And, and the language, it was just, you read it and you're like, oh, gosh, you know that came straight from general counsel, right? Right. And, and, and so that's the reality. We can't deny that. It's, uh, the lawyer's job at any company is to protect 
<laughs> the company from litigation and to limit liability, and we get that. But how do we create a balance between um, effective, uh, transparent, empathetic messaging that will resonate in a positive way with your audience, with the public, that says, we recognize this. We are doing the very best we can as quickly as we can to get to the bottom of it, but we want you to know that we see what's going on, we hear what's going on, and we're going to address what's going on, which when I articulate it, it sounds really simple, but it is so inexplicably complicated that I think just having the voices on the panel and putting the questions out there and and soliciting questions from the audience, um, I hope will be uh, a really positive and powerful exercise for all of us. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have an incredible panel. You've got Jamie Messler. (laughs) No, you're going to do you're going to do great. The hardest thing with these things is, you know, it's a 50 minute conversation. So it's so hard to fit everything into 50 minutes. But you also don't want to go two hours and having people look at their watches and going, God, when are this thing going to end? You know, you you want them leaving wanting more. But you're going to have Jamie Messler, who's the president of the Players Tribune on your panel, Carrie Potts from uh, ESPN, who has such an amazing backstory and is such a talented PR person. David Cohen, who is a longtime uh, sports legal expert. He's worked for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Los Angeles Angels. And then Ted Cruz, who, by many people's opinion, is the best uh, team PR person in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's their VP of communication. So you've got an all-star panel with different perspectives and I think it's going to be really good. And, you know, the the examples I look at recently, Bonnie, if you look at, like, the Carolina Panthers and the position they were in with Jerry Richardson. So John Wertheim was on my show last week. And, you know, that story breaks. And you've got PR people who have to deal with a really negative story about your owner. And, by the way, this owner is signing your paychecks. So yeah. what do you do there? And then I look at Tom Izzo now in the wake of the whole uh, Dr. Nassar scandal. And every time he speaks, I don't believe him. And he sounds like a lawyer. You can tell someone messaged him and they said, you can and can't say this. And, you know, now he's even at a point where he's like, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. And I think people want transparency and they want believability. And as soon as they as soon as they see they don't have that they're they're like, I don't know if I respect or believe you anymore. But there's another critical piece of the Tom Izzo story, and it's that well, yes, he's totally over-messaged now, but that's in part because they didn't get to him soon enough. And that, that's one of the things that we need to talk about. So when, when crisis hits, I think, and we'll talk about this, one of the most critical elements of handling it is immediately identifying who is potentially going to be in front of a microphone that you know will be asked about this case. Guess what? Tom Izzo is one of those guys you are smack dab in the middle of basketball season. So how, when this was going down, they didn't have a conversation with Izzo saying, you're going to be asked about this and let's talk about it. I I don't know how that happens. I'll tell you how. You want to know how, and and I'm going to be critical here for a minute. SIDs are not equipped for strategy or crisis. They're great at getting you your press credential. They're great at getting you your seat on press row. They can get you the interview after the game. They can set up a press conference. If you have to do anything more than that, they are not very strong. There's a few. I don't want to generalize and say all, but most do not anticipate that kind of strategy that you just described. Oh, gosh, we better arm 
Tom Izzo, and even Mark D'Antonio, who's not in season, who's going to be asked about this. Oh, and by the this. way, they're board of trustees, too. And that ding-a-ling went on the air on radio and said, oh, you know, we literally spent 10 minutes talking about our president. And I've been here 30 years, and she's the best president we've ever had because she raised $30 million for the Breslin Center. I, I, you, you can't even misconstrue that quote. Right. You know, how on earth? Is anybody on the board permitted to go on local radio and pontificate in that sort of way in the middle of crisis? But your point raises another interesting question, which is where do crisis management experts fit in this picture? So you got two options. You could have somebody in-house. I mean, in theory, you would like to have somebody running your media relations department who has experience in crisis management, which really is, to your point, a completely different skill set. So that, that's your, your pie in the sky thing. You've got somebody with experience. But if not, do you hire somebody? Does, does a crisis management person get added to your headcount or do you outsource it? If you do the latter, therein lies another challenge because that person's going to come in cold and have to get a quick read on the situation and he doesn't have any time to cultivate the trust of the people he's directing or she is directing. So, I mean, it's, it, again, is complicated. Uh, media relations department, by and large, are only staffed as much as they need to be. They're not traditionally high-paying positions. I don't know that there's the financial bandwidth to bring in somebody like that, but what do you do? So, you know, I think that's going to be another really critical uh, part of the conversation as well. Well, what's happening more on college campuses is they're hiring CCOs, so chief communications officers. Because after, you know, what we've seen at Penn State and who, by the way, Penn State paid Edelman millions of dollars to come in as outside counsel and help them. That went well. Yeah. I'm not going to dig a hole on that one because I have some friends there. But, uh, yeah, CCO is becoming a more popular hire on university campuses, not only for if something goes wrong in the athletic department, but if something goes wrong on campus, period. Before, it was just, like you said, that low-paying person in PR in the president's office, or it was the SID, and if crises arose, you were like, oh, God, what do I do now? Like, I've never had to handle something like this before. So people are trying to get out in front of it a little bit more, but there's still so many people. And, and the Michigan State example we just gave is a great example of how they mishandled that. But, you know, going back to that Carolina Panthers example or even the Dallas Mavericks example, when it deals with your owner, now you've got this inherent conflict, right? You You have to... Be transparent and you have to address this, but you're also being very careful not to throw the guy or woman under the bus who signs your checks. Like, that's a tough position to be in. At that point, and and again, you sort of have to weigh um, the type of accusations, the number of accusations. An owner is, you know, an employer and as should be treated, in my mind, no different than any other employee because whether it is a low-level assistant or an owner, once those sorts of accusations go public, you're dealing with an image problem. Now, is the image problem amplified if it is the team owner? Sure. But when you're dealing with um, the sort of culture that's now being brought to light, any hit on your company isn't a good look. Now, it's a lot easier to, you know, fire the lower-level employee than it is 
for, you know, the decision to be made, then an owner is stepping down or an owner selling the team or whatever the situation is. But I, I think it's important to not look at who is alleged to have committed a crime or, um, you know, an active behavior that is not healthy, um, but acknowledge the fact that it's happening inside your workplace. And, and maybe part of that is the way we discuss how we can evolve the messaging. Because, I mean, I understand your point about how we have to tiptoe around how we're going to message the fact that an owner's uh, allegedly in hot water. But in the grand scheme of things, allegations are allegations. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Reserve your spot for the 2018 Sports PR Summit presented by the Players' Tribune on Tuesday, May 22nd at the Players' Tribune headquarters in New York City. The Sports PR Summit brings together elite athletes, national media members, and senior PR and social media executives for panel discussions, featured conversations, and networking opportunities. The event allows PR execs to lead with a better understanding of the elite athletes, owners, commissioners, and national media people they're working with. The event also allows attendees to see Derek Jeter's one-of-a-kind digital publishing company, The Players' Tribune, up close, as well as network with top Players' Tribune executives. Past Sports PR Summit speakers include NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, NFL stars Anquan Bolden and Demarcus Ware, Cleveland Cavaliers all-star Isaiah Thomas, WNBA legend Lisa Leslie, ESPN reporters Tom Rinaldi and Jeremy Schapp, and Sports Illustrated executive editor and 60 Minutes correspondent John Wartime. The Sports PR Summit has sold out each of its first five years, and there are only 125 spots. Reserve your spot today by going online to sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at Sports PR Summit. I hope to see you on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York City. Now back to our conversation. So if you want to come to Sports PR Summit, if you work in PR, social come media. Join the fun. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sportsprsummit.com is where you can... Uh, Get your ticket. It's an invite-only event, Players' Tribune. Uh, you're going to do a great job. I want to be respectful of your time, Bonnie, but I have a few other questions I want to get to before we uh, let you move on to your day. Let's do it. So you're an entrepreneur like I am, and I know I have a set of things that I'm looking for. If someone comes to me and they go, Brian, I want you to invest in this, or I want you to be a partner on that, or I want you to start this, what is on that list for you if someone comes to you with a project and they, and they say, Bonnie, I want you involved? I had a really fascinating conversation that has changed my view on this um, appreciably about, I don't know, a month and a half ago. There is a fellow Maryland alumni, uh, a Maryland alum by the name of Wayne Kimmel, who um, I went to college with, graduated the same year. We both worked at WMUC, our campus radio station, but, you know, we lost touch. And I've been having some really interesting conversations uh, with venture capitalists about investing in my company, actually. And so I was at this networking event in New York, and Wayne and I reconnected. And I asked him specifically, what is your criteria for investment? Give me your, you know, top five priorities when you are having conversations and doing your diligence. And he said, number one thing is, are they nice? And then he stopped. And I said, really? You're like, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> that's it? Well, that wasn't it. 
But that that was number one on his list. And and honestly, Brian, it blew me away because when I think of the investment world, the finance world, you know, I think Wolf of Wall Street and it's just, you know, dudes with slick back hair and they're super serious and they're going to do whatever they need to do and nice is not anywhere in that conversation. It's kind of a bonus, but it's not a priority. And he just said nice. And I said, why? And he goes, it's really obvious, but nobody thinks about it because we we are inclined to want to invest in the smartest people or what we sense is the greatest idea or, you know, what will produce the greatest profit margin or, you know, whatever that traditional list is. So, but at the end of the day, we're investing in people. And if you don't like the people, it's not going to be a good investment, no matter how much money you make, because you're not going to enjoy the experience. And it is something that is so simple yet so powerful and has resonated with me so strongly that I'm ripping them off. That's mine too. Um, The other thing is too, is that um, for me, um, I'm, I don't consider myself different, but I am, when I'm focused on something, you can't move me. And so I wake up every day with passion and commitment to being the best I can be, to being the best teammate I can be, to making the project I'm working on the best it can be, and to always, always supersede expectations. And what I've come to realize is that not everybody's like that. Not everybody is committed to collaboration. There are lots of people who like living in their silos. And if, you're, if you start veering into their lane, the territorial walls go up. I have no tolerance for that. I really don't. And, and I've, just, I've, I've gotten to the point where it's a non-starter for me. Now, that requires additional due diligence. There are people I've done work with before who I would consider friends, who I didn't do business due diligence on. And that's been a really important part of my learning curve because we have to be able to separate the type of friendship you have with somebody with the type of business relationship you will have with somebody. And so, you know, my approach in business now is I don't think there's anything wrong with doing business with friends, but if you're going to do it, you have to commit to doing the same type of thorough due diligence as to who they are as a business person to see if you're a fit. Due diligence is everything. And obviously, you, you can't possibly know everything unless you're in the relationship, but you can have conversations. You can speak with people who have done business with this person or worked on projects and get a sense for whether the personalities match, whether there is like commitment, there is like work ethic, and there is like uh, agreement on the value of a true collaboration no matter what that looks like. And while it's easy to say when you're in the thick of it and people are used to driving in their own lane, there's a lot of times a residence to let people in with the understanding that we all have the same goal. We all have the same goal. So if a janitor comes up with a great idea, I am all for it, and I will sing their praises, and I don't care that you make minimum wage. If there is a high-level employee and, you know, there is a creative brainstorming in the mix, and somebody comes in and says, let's think about doing it differently, we all owe it to ourselves to go through that process and, and think of that's going to shift things. 
And so, you know, my, my business process has really started to crystallize over the last year. And, and while it, it sounds very hard and finite, for me, that sort of criteria is what I know will put me in the best environment to thrive and really enjoy my, my daily grind. That is amazing advice. Um, I think it's very focused. You know, you just talked about being focused. Of all the things you just said, the thing that resonated with me the most, first, I love being collaborative. Uh, I've been on my own now. I left the Trailblazers uh, 20 years ago. So this is 20 years for me on my own. And I love collaborating with different people. It's one of the reasons I left. There were a lot of people I wanted to collaborate with that I knew I wouldn't be able to if I had remained there. But... I think the thing that you said that struck me the most, because I've had this frustration, is when you're an entrepreneur and you start something, no one's ever going to have the same level of passion and commitment for it as you are. It's 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 yep. your thing. So the one thing that I appreciate about people like you and others that have moderated at Sports PR Summit is I love the focus and the passion that you bring to your conversations. And I appreciate that so much. I'll just say that now, Bonnie, is I really appreciate your preparation, your professionalism, your relationships that you have with people. Um, it's all noticed by me. But with that being said, when you have you know your production company or any business that you start, I think sometimes it's hard because – there's no one that's going to love it like we do. There's no one that's going to be committed to it like we are. And sometimes it can be frustrating if you work with people and you're like, gosh, they just don't have the same drive and passion towards this project that I do. And, and that can be a little bit frustrating. So the value of aligning yourself with people who have that same kind of passion, um, even if it's 75 percent of the of the passion that you have for a project is important. Yeah, but it's also important to. I mean, I just, I'm literally going through a project right now where I'm dealing with this. <clears throat> and what I appreciate about my relationship with you is that, you know, as, as we were putting this panel together, first, I, um, I really appreciate that you, that we were talking through this together. And we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on, you know, all of the panelists, but we talked through it. Ultimately, the way I view this particular situation is that, you're my client. So I always have to be mindful. Sure, I have my opinions. Hopefully they are opinions that are well-prepared and educated and passionate. But ultimately, you make the decision, and that needs to be okay. So there are different dynamics in relationships. There are certain situations where I have the ability to control, hey, if you're not going to be on my team, we're not going to work together. That situation, that dynamic is a little bit different when you are working with a client. And, and part of my personal growth process has been, you know, the client is writing your paycheck, right? So you do the best job you can, but ultimately if a client wants something that doesn't necessarily align with your vision, um, either you say, okay, you're the boss, we're going to do it your way, or you have to have the very, very difficult conversation that I, I appreciate this is your decision. Um, it's not something that I feel I can execute for you, so I need to step away. Sometimes a lot of people financially aren't in the position to do that, Brian, you know, like, right. it, particularly if you're younger. And so, you know, I say this feeling fortunate that I'm in a position that I worked really hard when I was at the networks and I saved money and, and I'm going to be okay. Uh, but they're very difficult 
discussions to have. But ultimately, the most important thing is that whatever it is that you express, it's with conviction. The net of that experience is not something you should take personally. And as best as you can in any situation, try for that experience not to be divisive. Always try to be positive and appreciative and look at every situation as an opportunity to learn and grow and be better and smarter and more communicative and more collaborative the next time around. And so, you know, while I'm sort of going through this very process with um, a a partner, not a client per se, but a partner, um, what I've learned is it's important to try to have this conversation about how they feel about collaboration before you get into bed with somebody. And if you have the ability to have that as, as some sort of um, point in your uh, letter of intent document or whatever that commitment document looks like, if you have the ability to include that language in there, that way it is documented, that's really helpful. But, but you know, it, it all comes back to what I said. It's, it's part of my learning process. Well, again, thank you for your collaboration and your professionalism on Sports PR Summit. Uh, you know, as I said before at the top of the interview, you're someone whose work I've admired from afar for a long time. So it's really been fun to get to know you the last few years and, and be able to work with you on this. Before I let you go, you are what I would call an expert on social media. I love following you on Twitter. I love following you on Instagram. You get tons of engagement I know our audience is always interested in hearing from people who have that kind of success on social media. So give me your, your recipe for success on social media. Hmm, that's an interesting one. I don't know that I actually have a recipe. I just like to experiment a lot. Um, in, in terms of engagement, so my largest platform right now is Twitter. But I also realize that Twitter um, has, I, I feel like it's become more a platform for information, even though they've really you know, pushed Periscope as uh, a live platform extension, and it's great. Um, but ultimately, we want people who are engaged. So for Twitter, one of the ways to improve engagement is to include a visual with your copy, whether that is a picture that's interesting, uh, interesting enough to warrant people to click on, or a link to a video, or what I do a lot, because I'm trying to build my Instagram platform, is I'll link to an Instagram. But what's that copy look like? Is that copy being constructed in such a way that I'm, it's the, the popular term these days is clickbait, but, but ultimately that's what it is. How am I constructing this copy to incentivize you, to make you say, oh, I want to click on this and check it out? You know? So that's one. Number two is ask questions. I, I love the fact that social media is a place where we can share our opinions, but people really appreciate when I let them know, I want, I want to know what your opinion is. It also keeps you safe in some sort of politically charged arenas, and I don't really delve too much into politics on my platform. I am very well aware of who my audience is, um, but I don't want to deny the fact that there's really important stuff going on in the world that is politically um, politically related. And so I ask, how do you feel about this? And that way it keeps me safe because I'm not necessarily voicing my opinion, but I let people know, hey, you're, you're my fans, you're my people. I want to know how you feel. Another way to do that is polls. Polls are highly interactive. Um, so I'm a big fan of polls too. 
Um, when it comes to Instagram, because it's a much more visual medium than Twitter is and, and Facebook too, um, I don't do a ton of live, but I do enjoy the storytelling. And um, I always use Tom Brady as an example. So Tom Brady wasn't exactly at the top of the social media mecca, but he decided at some point to start posting things about Giselle and his kids on Facebook. And his Facebook blew up because what we have the ability to do on social media as, as public-facing folks is cut the publicists out and, and let people into our lives. I don't necessarily think that my life is all that exciting, but, you know, I, I did something super cool yesterday, for example. So um, I am on the board of visitors for our journalism school at the University of Maryland. I was a, I was a journalism major, and, and being able to stay in touch with young folks who aspire to be in our industry is really important to me. Being able to shape in, in, in some small way what their curriculum looks like, it's just really exciting because our industry is evolving so much. And so one of the things that I've been trying to do is create opportunities for really rich experiences for our students. Um, Gail King at CBS this morning is a Maryland alum, and so I set up a meeting with her in the fall. I'd never met her before. I you know, shared a little bit about my background, how passionate I'm about our journalism students at Maryland. And, and at the end, the ask was, would you be willing to visit with you know, a handful of our best and brightest? And she agreed. And so yesterday, I was like the little kid documenting uh-huh. the students, the students, you know, walking, being in the control room. So I, I got shots of them in the control room. And then Oprah was a guest on CBS this morning, and I took this really cute video of them. They had just taken a picture with Oprah, and they're like shaking and sweating. I'm like, so how are you feeling right now? <laughs> like we're sweating, um, but just being able to take people behind the scenes. Not only when I'm on the job, but things that are really meaningful to me in my personal life, there's no place else a fan can get that than on my feed. So, you know, when I think about how to create engagement and how to build audience, those are the sorts of things I like to, I guess, try to keep in mind. Bonnie Bernstein, you can follow her on Twitter at Bonnie Bernstein. You can learn all about her at BonnieBernstein.com. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Really looking forward to your conversation at Sports PR Summit on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York. And again, uh, it's been fun for me the last few years to become friends with you and, and get to collaborate with you. So thank you for that as well. If you didn't have a kid, I'd make you move to the East Coast. But you know, we'll, 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 we'll do what we can. We'll see each other when we can. And, and thank you again so much, Brian, sincerely, for um, having me on your podcast. I know lots of great folks have, have been on your pod before, and um, I, I can't wait till May 22nd. And, and I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that we come away from this panel with people feeling like it was really uh, impactful and positive experience and, and that we have some meaningful discussions. So. No, I know it's going to be meaningful, and I know people are going to walk away with uh, tangible things to take to their organization. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at Parish Project to create high-quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long-sleeve t-shirts, and short-sleeve t-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls, while working out, or when you're lounging around the house. 
Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com. P-A-R-I-S-H project.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.